Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Big Bass Podcast live. That's right. We are live. There's no room for error here. We have got to be absolutely perfect on this tightrope that is our podcast. There's no room for error. If we slip, we fall. It's all over. So we're excited to have one of our all-time favorite guests with us. But first, before we bring in Jim Brown, who you can see very plainly on the screen here, I got to introduce my co-host, Terry Battisti, and our partner, Nathan Benson. Nathan runs behind the scenes stuff because he's technically adept. I would, if, if they no, made, no, he just takes yeah, now he's gone. Uh, <laughs> if they made, if they made cell phones with a rotary dial, that's what I would be using because I am a Luddite. Batisti's not much better than me, but uh, Terry, Terry, introduce our guest, please, sir. Oh, he's a man that, you know, who needs, who could, he, there's no good way to introduce Jim Brown. I mean, you know, the, the, the former director, and I'm going to screw this up, Jim, even though I've introduced you three times uh, already. Uh, Jim Brown, former director of the San Diego Parks Department Lakes. No, yeah. Why don't you, Jim, why don't you introduce Czar of all, his official title is <laughs> Czar of all things Big Bass in Southern California since about 1958. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, uh, yeah 59. Jim Brown happily retired as San Diego City Lakes Recreation Program manager now 20 years and one month retired. There you go. Wow. Has it been that long? But, but yeah. there is no retirement from the Big Bass Podcast, Jim. That's the bad news. That's what I'm afraid of. <laughs> Welcome, sir. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's, it's really a pleasure. I have a lot of fun doing this. My family uh, gets a kick out of it. My bass fishing now bassaholic grandson up in oroville uh thoroughly enjoys the shows and uh ken you've been so good to help him out by sending him some fishing tackle and he's replaced all the tackle i gave him with stuff you sent him well i'm, I'm i've got more care packages planned for evan so not to worry there cool. um you know, when we when we bring Jim Brown on, folks, there's just so much to talk about. But of course, we're focusing on on so many of those legendary fish that came from Southern California, really beginning in the late 1960s, but perhaps shaking up the bass fishing world really in 1973 with a Dame, Dave Zimmerly fish, which is a replica of that fish, is just above Jim's head on the screen yep. right now. 20 pounds, 15 ounces uh june 1973 a legendary catch but jim we, we covered that in an earlier episode of the big bass podcast one of the things i want to jump into here right off the bat terry and i are so excited about this is, is a guy who's legendary not for fish he caught but for <laughs> fish he claims he caught how about that yeah. and, and well, uh, his name is phil J. yeah well Philip M.J. was actually really a good fisherman. He was equal or better as something of a, I don't know, con man. And um, he, he had a very colorful period of time in Southern California, uh, which was, in a sense, launched uh, after he served on your florida fish and game commission hey 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 lighten yeah. up yeah. lighten up on the florida on the florida stuff man you guys you guys are always ganging up on me uh well, totally unfair totally uncalled I mean, for he completely completely had the florida gig going because 
He was part of the American Bass Fisherman, which started out as the Florida Bass Fisherman Tournament Series. And, and he, along with George Oates and a couple of other folks, tried to, to screw a bunch of anglers out of a bunch of money. You know, arrest Schmest, okay? You know, <laughs> what's the big deal? What's the big deal that you put a few fish in a tank and then put them in somebody's live well and claim they won a tournament? You know, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the Phil J that we're talking about. I mean, he has a record that starts in Florida and then goes to Texas when he somehow talks American angler into letting him run their gig. Uh, he, he came here first and then he went to oh, Texas. Oh, did he? Yeah, because I indeed yeah. okay. he did, and and just to give you guys, just to give everybody a little background on Philip Matthew J, uh, he was born in 1940 in Virginia, in Virginia, and he passed away uh, a little over nine years ago when he was right. living in Palm Springs, California, and um, he was an angler. He was a publisher. He claimed a bunch of record bass. He published American Angler Magazine. Uh, he was allegedly a co-conspirator along with George Oates and a guy named Skip Fisher and Bernie Keene uh, in a criminal case that charged him with conspiracy to commit grand larceny in association with an American bass, uh, an American bass fisherman tournament back in 1974, uh, right here in Florida yep. where I live. Yep. Uh, Jay and these other guys allegedly caught some fish in Osceola County, kept them in a holding tank in Cocoa Beach before uh, they were turned over to a couple of other anglers who were competing in uh, an American bass angler tournament. Yep. And uh, they weighed the bass as though they had caught them. And uh, Oates, Fisher, and Keene were subsequently convicted of grand larceny and some other crimes. <coughs> uh, but, but where Jay kind of made a name for himself and got known in the bass fishing community was claiming multiple fish over 18 pounds, including at least one over 20 pounds from Southern California uh, back in the 1970s. And uh, Jim here had the, I'm not going to go out and say pleasure, Jim, I'll say Pri distinction. The privilege. Of knowing <laughs> Phil J. And I got to say, Phil J is such a, a legend in the world of big bass, rightly or wrongly infamous or famous that i wish i had known the guy because i get a kick out of out of these people who uh who, who for whom the truth has little particular meaning yeah he he kind of is one of the early alternative facts guys but i want to yeah. go back <laughs> just a little bit ken uh because you mentioned that case and i recall a writer from Florida or Georgia calling to talk to me and he had written about it and he, you had you mentioned how everyone but Phil was arrested and he explained that to me Phil turned state's evident, evidence uh, against yep. his co-conspirators according yep. to that writer but here's the real kicker the Actually, idea I Actually, I have it on my website that in the, in the newspaper articles that I was able to come up with that it says specifically in there that he became state's witness. Yeah, but the best thing about this is the scheme was his idea. 
<laughs> that's wow. That's that's what makes it so perfect. No honor among thieves. No. Uh, that, wow. Who was the writer, Jim? Who was the writer? Do you recall? I I I don't. And I left those files and the stories he wrote uh, in the office when I left the city. But uh, he was very familiar with it. Had investigated and written the story. And it, it just cracked me up when he got to the point where he explained everybody else got in trouble, but not Phil. Hilarious. I was wondering if it was maybe like Frank Sargent or somebody like that. Uh, Bill Sargent, a couple of uh, Charlie Waterman. Um, no. Number of Florida guys who, who could have been uh, in the mix on that story. Who Who is the uh, writer that you guys will remember out of Georgia? in the home of the masters oh you're talking about bill babb might have been him yeah yeah bill was uh bill put a lot more focus on on the george perry world record than anything else really oh, that's what he's known for as, right. uh, as an expert on that world record fish but bill babb charles salter was a prominent georgia outdoor writer at that time yeah i, I was just curious because um uh, I th I think Terry and I are the only one who, ones who care who who the outdoor writers are. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. I'm going to look it up real quick. I think I might have that answer. On since uh, since they've gone the way of the dinosaurs in daily newspapers, along with sports sections. Yeah. 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 Unfortunate. Um, yeah, those guys. I, I even as a kid, I paid attention to the bylines in the magazines. You know. I was curious about who was doing those stories. And and uh, if I wrote a, a story for English class in, in school, it was about it was about fishing. And if I got a decent grade on it, I thought, hey, maybe I can do this. This is this is not right. So I've got a lot of I got a lot of stuff written by uh, Mike Lewis. Uh, and Saul. No. Uh, not familiar with those. No. And I might not remember the name if you told me, but I do. I, I loved the story that he was able to to tell me about turning state's right. evidence after designing the scheme and convincing Oates what a great idea it was on the basis that he had two fishermen who, if they won the money, would kick back half. <laughs> Anyway, we want to say thank you to Funky Fisherman for uh, donating the, 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 the 10 bucks. Thank you, sir. Yes, thank you, Funky. We appreciate that. Um, then, you know, now, of course, Bill J did take that detour. He did come out here to America, or Florida, as I like to call it, and, uh, and did some bad things. Um, but, but that's not what he's really best known for. And did you know... Phil J before that 1974 criminal activity, Jim, or did you meet him after that? I met him after that. Right. Yeah. He, I didn't know him before that, but he called me before he left Florida and wrote me a letter and circled his name on Florida fish and game commission stationery. Uh, so clearly he uh, was well vetted in a state famous for its politics and so he came, he came out Another here. Another attack. 
Terry, that's not an attack. It's just a fact. I, I, it's, it's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Anyway, uh, yeah, so he had Jim, written I'm, me. We're so, we're so glad you, you fought your way through the homeless people and the drug abusers to get to your computer this evening <laughs> in California. Thank you. Thank you for that. Actually, I, they were in the house and I put them on a plane today. So, no, actually, I've been really tied up because I had a great time with uh, our daughter and her family coming down here. And I got to, you know, be with my bass crazy grandson and take him to fish for Corbina at Del Mar last night. Anyway, yeah, so we, we had a good time and now I'm batching it for about a week and free at last. <laughs> Yeah, you got everybody on a plane. Well, well, Phil J. So you you got a letter from him. Sure. FWC let, me, let, me, let me let me explain that letter. So Phil writes me a letter and touts the fact that he's a member of the Florida Fish and Game Commission, and he is very well known. I suspect he was, and he was coming home to San Diego. Uh, would be at his parents' house on Neva Street, which is less than four miles from my house, and uh, that he wanted to make sure that I understood that he needed to have a key to the gate at all the lakes. And for me to give a letter to all of our reservoir keepers and rangers instructing them that he was a famous person in the world of bass fishing, a writer. And as such, he would require that level of support. Now, how many people actually had such a key? Jim when, I, when I came in, <laughs> when I came into the job, I came with a background and history of baggage associated with abuse of the lakes by people who should not have authority or opportunity to be on them. I can tell you that the key to Upper Otai, the famous Florida bass hatchery, was valued at $25 at George's Hideaway in Spring Valley if you were playing pool. And uh, that was one value placed on it. There, was, there were just a lot of things going on. And as a very young teenager, I was in the middle of that. I was, was living with a dam keeper's family. Uh, you know, a bottle of whiskey will get you on a lake in, in a lot of places. And so I, I was, you know, I was the guy, I was the fishing guy. You know, if somebody showed up, I was 12, 13 years old. Hey, take this guy fishing. Um, so it was really such a bizarre thing. So having admittedly been a part of that, fishing on closed days myself, fish, you know, when the season wasn't open, I was very well aware of every crooked thing you could do on a lake when you had access and privilege. And I have to say that, that I learned during a period of time after I left Otai Lake, where I, where I ran the boat dock when I was 19 and 20, 
going up north at Humboldt State to school when I was 21, coming back to San Diego, and then getting a job running a kid's lake in, in which the ethics of all of this really began to make a difference to me. Because people who knew me, and this was a 15 and under lake, were showing up at the lake to go fishing. And I was telling him, no, this is a closed lake. It's been closed for almost 100 years. And uh, I'm running it for kids. And then two guys that I knew well, uh, two brothers well-known in the bass fishing community, showed up with a couple of kids. And the couple of kids were up on the hill throwing rocks at the ducks. And the two guys were on, on a point in the lake uh, catching catfish. So I finally had to go to them guys I'd known for a long time. And I said, you know, using your kids as an excuse for you to poach a lake where the fish are intended and planted for kids is pretty low. And so I, I, I kind of had a real change in the way I approached things. And, and so I began my job in the summer of 1974. And except on press uh, visits, that were approved, I never fished on a closed lake again. Good for you. Uh, yeah. You know, I and to, to put that in perspective, the fishing community was really getting upset. And I had not been in the job for more than two weeks when Bobby Sandberg, who was a guy that my dad taught uh, how to use a plastic worm and was a very good fisherman. I taught his yeah. girlfriend at the time how to, how to use uh, surface lures. And so he calls me and he says, Jim, I'm in the Pisces Bass Club. And we're really upset about the press party that's going to be held at El Capitan. So we're going to have a blockade and prevent everybody from coming in. Well, I had no knowledge of the basics of the press policy of the press party, only that I came into the job and I was told, oh, yeah, we're having a oh, excuse me, an opening event uh, at El Cap and the media will be coming. And I said, OK, so I alerted the staff and they were kind of used to this, didn't really like it. And. I found out that there were like 150 people on the press list, which I knew couldn't be right. And so a little later, there was a fishing tackle show in LA and I witnessed the bass that had been caught on the press day at El Capitan in freezers selling spinnerbaits and other lures. Okay. By the family manufacturers at the time. And I think that those were the Millers and they were had permission to, to do cool. that. And it just really, uh, it, it really put a bad taste in the mouse mouth of the bass fishing community. And rightly so, because in the course of those press days, it's the first exposure of the fish that have been protected pretty much through the season or off season. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you've got a limited party coming out, hammering them, keeping them. So there was a, a period of time in which I really annoyed 
the media group, but especially the hangers on. And Terry, you know, from being up there in LA area, Orange County, that you had a situation where there were probably uh, two manufacturers reps and five people in the tackle industry for every member of the media, and they all had media privileges, and they brought yeah. friends. Yeah, so yeah. Folks- so Rit, Rit Nunnery, for example, uh, you talk about yeah. Mike and Mike and Dick Miller. You know, yeah. uh, so Rit Nunnery had Bandit Bass Lures. The Millers had uh, crap. What was it? Uh, I can't remember the name of it. I have one of their patches. Um, anyway, uh, they had these tackle, you know, companies and they would go out on media day and everybody would be pissed, you know, and yeah. Rip was a good, and the Millers were a good friend of, of the owner, Bob's tackle. And, uh, Prescott would be pissed because Prescott owned the tackle store and yet he couldn't go fish yet. Rip well, a lot in the Millers are, are going out. And yeah, it was, uh, there was a lot of uh, hate and discontent spread with that whole San Diego media day thing. Yeah, so I inherited kind of a really bad deal. And yeah. I when I when I was hired, uh was hired by a great guy who was the park and rec director when we were in the park and rec department. He just said, Jim, we we've watched what you did at, at Choice Lake. Uh have total faith in you to run this the way you see fit. And you're not to listen to anybody about how to do it. You just do it the way you want. And that includes not permitting my assistant director, who was three levels above me, to go fishing on the lakes. Because somebody, you know, people in the city who had a position, they were out there too. And so uh, it was a kind of a crazy process. The first thing I had to do was I sent a letter to every person on the media list. And let me go back to Sandberg. And I said to Bob, Bobby, I've been in this job for two weeks. Um, I don't really know quite what's going on, but just tell your friends that I I don't think it's a good idea to have a blockade of El Monte Road leading into El Capitan. Uh, Let me try to figure out how to work with this. And just trust me on it. And and so whether or not they were really going to have a blockade, he said, yeah, okay. Now, let's be honest. A lot of the guys in Pisces were notorious for poaching. They hated seeing other people when they got there. Uh, And most (laughs) guys, not everybody in Pisces, there are a lot of great guys and good sportsmen in Pisces. But but there were enough to give Pisces the reputation. And... uh, it was it was a very challenging situation. So I wrote a letter to everybody on the list, and I said, "Please send me a tear sheet uh, or a copy of a radio show that you did pertaining to your opening day experience. Also, please describe to me your role as to why you are a member of the media." Probably seventy five percent of the people didn't respond knowing they'd be dropped from the list. Um, quite a few did. Um, and later, when I was just down to the media, 
I had to deal with the fact that some media members who were allowed to bring a guest because their point was always, you know, I've got to be able to take a photo of somebody other than myself as part of our effort to describe this. And I thought, you know, that's true. I, I totally understand that. Uh, and they, so they would bring a guest. And then I realized they were trading it by bringing in, in one case, uh, bringing in a guide from Colorado, an elk guide, and trading him a bass fishing trip <laughs> on a city lake in return for an elk hunting trip for that rider. And so all of a sudden, I just keep whittling and whittling and whittling. And eventually, I had went from you know close to 150, maybe 140, to about a dozen people that I could consider legitimate. And so when they would say, I want to come down and I'd bring a guest, then I had to change the rules and say no bass over four pounds can be kept. And then later, it was no bass can be kept uh, after a couple guys kept two 12-pounders. <laughs> I mean, uh, people were pushing every, uh, every guardrail was knocked down. And I had to get them back up for the really the integrity of the program. And I think I'm probably as proud of that as anything else. It probably took three or four years to get it cleaned up to where I was satisfied with it. Uh, but we did get there. Um, it wasn't without some scars for me. Um, one writer from Western Outdoor News sent a letter to the mayor and the city manager asking that I be terminated for my rude uh, uh, got rude uh, approach to dealing with the media. And one of his colleagues didn't go quite that far, but, you know, said how unfairly he was treated. Uh, and so that was a kind of a tough time. Uh, but it was great when that same park and rector, rec director, his response was, who in the hell do these people think they are? And he was absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah. Let, let me jump in here, Jim. Um, first of all, shout out to a few folks. Uh, Paul, Mr. Fishhook. Again, Paul, thank you for those spinnerbaits, buzzbaits you sent me. They're fantastic. Looking forward to using them. Um, to, to Eric, uh, who sent me a, a fabulous and historic box of jigs that we'll talk about in a later episode. Uh, to a lot, a lot of folks joining in here. Our buddy Brown Mike bait. Davis. Brown, Brown Bait, Bait Company, Company, Brennan Brown. And Nathan, yeah. I'd love for you to bring um, bring Brown Bait Company's question up for Jim here in a moment. But uh, yeah. before before we do that, I want to tell everybody out there, everybody who's checking us out on YouTube Live right now, if you've got a question for Jim Brown, uh, please post it there because uh, we want your questions to be heard. Uh, Terry, as you all know, talks too much. We, we've heard enough from Terry already tonight. Uh, so... <laughs> no, that's oh, not true. Geez. But uh, but yeah, we want to hear your questions. That's why we do the live shows so everybody can participate, yeah. get their questions heard, and so forth. So, with that said, Jim, I'm curious because one of the things that's legendary uh, about about not just the lakes that you managed in San Diego, uh, but also the L.A. lakes like Castaic, Casitas, and so forth, they were right. famous for the poaching that was done for guys slipping in without without proper authorization or slipping in at night and stuff like that. Just how easy was it to do that? Um, it was about as easy as uh, 
unlocking your front door with the key. It was easy. Uh, if you knew the really fire honest, roads, if you got a no. fire road, if you got a fire it, road map. <laughs> yeah. No. And it's that's still going on. Let's be honest. There's no security at night. There's just very limited. We So we are guys security. launching boats at night or are they just uh, fishing no, on the bank? Uh, what are they doing? Well, in the case of Lake Jennings, Hugh Marks was allowing guys to do it at night. That was kind of how Mike Long got established uh, there at Lake Jennings. Um, and they'd be out, you know, he and a couple of other guys that I know that fished with them. And Hugh, uh, Hugh was I, a devotee. I, I, fished with him on, I fished with him on Jennings on a closed day all yeah. day long. We went up there, punched the code into the key, the gate opened, and we went and launched his boat. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, Hugh was a dear friend and, and a great guy. But he and he had the authority given him to by his that. employer to do this. However, um, there was uh, it, Orville Ball, uh, who, you know, I was an intern under and knew for years and years. Uh, and the same was true of the the relationship Hugh Marks had with him. And I would say the two of them believed that anything was good as long as it brought attention to the lake for big fish and brought more people to the lake. And uh, I'm afraid I had to stop quite short of that. Got a great question here from Brendan Brown at Brown Bay Company. Uh, Jim, will California ever be what it was back in the day producing massive fish if they can start stocking trout consistently again? Do you think it can rebound and become what it was? Um, I, I, I don't think that is out of the question, save for one thing. Everyone's keeping their bat or everyone is practicing catch and release. And the practice of catch and release leaves more individuals in the biomass that that lake can support. And the more individuals results in smaller fish. And so most biologists, uh, will, tell you, you know, I can either give you, you know, if this lake ha has a capacity to produce 100 pounds per acre, you know, we could either have 101 pound bass or 10, 10 pound bass, you know, we'd have to figure out a way to manage it and aim for it. And to do that, you have to control the population. So here we're seeing a situation where people are assailed for keeping a bass um, the, uh, standard thing that a new bass fishing fisherman is told, ah, that you can't eat them. They're not edible or they have more bones than carp, all of which is nonsense. Um, I bass would, are delicious. Uh, yeah. Growing, growing up at Lake Sutherland, <laughs> as well as when I was at home in San Diego at Lake Sutherland, I probably ate bass two nights a week and cottontails the other and living in downtown when I was there with my family. Uh, and my dad would go fishing, we'd probably ate bass once a week. So uh, it's it's just one of those things. The culture has changed. And to uh, answer the gentleman from, from Brown Bay Company, uh, I've got to say that uh, that is one of the issues that biologists wrestle with because it's so counterintuitive for them to say, 
kill your fish, raise the limit. You want bigger fish. Now, let's go back to the question of adding the trout. Yeah, if you're going to keep planting the trout, which I totally disagree with, I, I don't think the purpose of license money going to hatcheries to provide a trout fishing program in the state of California should be used as a bass feeding program. So I'm one of those people who... How did, uh, how did you get through our security, Jim Brown? <laughs> how did you get through the Big Bass Podcast well, security I mean, I, I, to appear on this show a, with that attitude? He's got I, a I point. I mean, he's you. got a point. He's got a point. You know, those he's trout are put in for point. the... Yeah. They're an invasive species. They're uh, they're put in there to grow. No, they're not. Bass. They're they're reservoirs. They're how could they be invasive? That lake didn't exist before they put the dam up. Okay, so they're not invasive. What are you talking about they're of course they're invasive. <laughs> they're brought in by bucket biologists. Well, they're brought in by actual. Well, so were the bass. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You're killing, they're killing your own point, Ken. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Oh my god. That uh, I, I get not wanting to bring in the trout because. Uh, the bass are already there. You're not going to get rid of the bass short of rotenoning the whole place. Uh, the trout, however, are put and take. Uh, right. And, and they're not going to survive a decade on their own. Well, they're not going to survive the summer. No, they're not going to survive the summer no. when the water temperature gets they're, above 70 they're, degrees. They're, um, in Southern California, there are exceptions. Uh, there are reservoirs where there's carryover. We used to have carryover at San Vicente. Trout are no longer planted in there, uh, but that lake was raised a hundred feet, and uh, I would—I haven't looked at the oxygen profiles, but it's very possible that it could have carryover fish, and any reservoir that has hypolimnetic aeration could have a carryover of trout. Yeah, the trout are going to move down to the the lower levels and and where oxygen is very low, but if they have enough oxygen, they're going to be able to survive in the cooler water. May back up a minute to the the poaching thing again, Jim. When you did catch somebody out there on the water on a day they weren't supposed to be there, and they didn't have special permission, they didn't have a key, or or you did catch them out there at, at night, where was anybody prosecuted or or just no. shake a finger uh, at them? Generally, it was we know who you are, get out of here, don't come back, and and it, you know th there were people who were embarrassed and didn't come back. There were people who flat out didn't care. So in terms of being cited for trespass at that time, no. But the one thing that we had in the early days was the in the San Diego County, uh, since these are not open bodies of water, but water supply reservoirs, the state allowed for the Fish and Game Code to state that fishing was permitted only from sunrise to sunset. So I, when we knew, we were, I'm sorry, I keep bumping my camera. Uh, when we knew that uh, th things were going on, I would contact our game warden friends and make sure that they had full access and support from our staff. And they would go out and cite people for uh, trespass at night fishing in the, at the lake illegally after hours. Uh, sometimes uh, that would include the use of two rods, which wasn't permitted. Um, sometimes it would include, um, oh gosh, oh, a, a state health code for fishing within 700 feet or a 30-day minimum water supply of the outlet tower. 
Okay. Well, so what you're saying is that for time immemorial, uh, California bass has been soft on crime, just like the rest of the well, state. Well, <laughs> it's been toothless. <laughs> yeah. So we got another question hey, from Andy. Herman. Shout out to our buddy Mike Davis, our buddy Brian Head. This is a great question from Andy Herman. Jim, what is the yes. biggest bass you've ever heard caught out of or poached from one of the Southern California lakes? I've heard very vague reports of a number of fish over 20 pounds, including world records, none of which stood up to any um, inspection. But we're talking about bass fishermen talking, right? And yeah. so you you had a situation where there were those those rumors. So to answer his question, the biggest bass is the one on the wall behind me that I have heard out of that was proven out of one of our lakes. And that is the 20 pound, 15 ounce Dave Zimmerly bass. Well, and we know how shaky that one was in, in other ways. Yes, it, uh, it had its issues as well, but was accepted ultimately at all levels by the IGFA, by the State Department of Fish and Game. So those would be the two bodies most concerned. And so it stands. As well it should. As well it should. Yeah. And, but then you gotta you gotta also talk about Dottie too, the last time it was caught by Mac Weekly, right? You know, twenty five pounds. Yeah. Or... Right. Yeah. So But and, Dixon and, is a, a northern California lake, am I right? Dixon? Dixon's yeah. no. southern. That's a no, it's southern California. Okay. North it's in North San Diego County. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Thanks. Escondido, uh city of Escondido yeah. owns it. Gotcha. But but I remember hearing, you know, rumors, reports of fish poached out of, you know, those lakes down there that were 24 pounds. I'm sure you heard of those. There was at least one of them that I heard of. Um, I can't remember the guy that supposedly caught it. Uh, but yeah, there was one 24 in the, in the mid-70s that was supposedly poached. Well, when we go back to talking about Phil J, I've got some stories. Well, that hey. <laughs> include that. Uh, you know, I mean, we have not even uh, scratched the surface of the Phil J stories. And so if, if, if there's a point you want to go back to that, uh, I'll be happy to sh share some. Let's, uh, yes. let's go back to Phil J. <laughs> so, uh, so, Phil was out here and inserted himself into the fishing community and uh, not as a member of a bass club, not as a tournament fisherman, but as a guy who showed up with big bass and he caught big bass. He was a good fisherman. He was a heck of a good uh, crawdad and uh, shiner fisherman. And in the process of inserting himself into it, what he found was he would form a bait company, a, a tackle company. And he opened up a shop adjacent to Lake Hodges in the, what was a garage at the Del Dios store. And Phil, who I, I think this is classic Phil J. He named his company Outlaw Tackle Company. And 
I think those people who were looking for excise taxes on the rods that he imported under that name and sold are very aware of the outlaw nature of the outlaw tackle company. Um, and so Phil further inserted himself by driving the other live bait purveyors out of business. And that was on two fronts. That was on mudsuckers that were trapped in the South Bay of San Diego and sold as bait, as well as golden shiners that he brought more often from Arkansas, maybe than some of the other areas. Um, trying to think. Yeah, I think I think it was Arkansas and a couple of other areas down there. And so he would had a tanker, you know, created a tank and brought in golden shiners. And he undercut the other people in the business and he became, he had a monopoly. And so he was the live bait guy in San Diego, which put him in touch with all the tackle shops, all the lake managers. And uh, it was a clever way for him to insert himself into a key part of the business. Yeah, I remember that tackle or the bait shop. It was like yeah. right there, right there. At the, when you, if I remember correctly, you'd, you'd go down the road and then you'd come to the T and the shop was on the right and then you'd hang yeah. left to get to Hodges. Yeah, exactly. we went in there. We went in there every time we went to Hodges. And as a kid, I threw bait. It's like every spring, you know, you'd have two or three trips. That, that's all you did. You went down and you bought six dozen crawdads and three dozen shiners because the shiners even back then were like a buck a piece yeah. and uh you know crawdads were 375 a dozen or something like that yeah uh, and you just fill your couple of uh coolers up with aerators and 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 bait and go out and bait fish and, and you always and had the Phil, best bait in town and yeah and phil did i mean he 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 learned how to take good care of that bait how to transport it yeah. how to set up the the bait tanks at the various concessions and yep. serviced them. And uh, I mean, he knew what he was doing. Uh, you know, no one ever said this guy was a fool. Uh, he, he was pretty, pretty darn sharp about doing all this. One of the ironies as a bait dealer is, is Phil died bringing a load of shiners back to San Diego. Oh my! He was God. driving. Yeah. At the time. Wow. Did he have an accident? Did he have a heart attack? Uh, what happened? I think it was either a heart attack or, or possibly a stroke uh, as he was driving. Yeah. Yeah, I know that happened in 2014, and uh, he was not a, a, a particularly young man at that time. He would have been 74 years old when he passed away, but not, not necessarily a candidate for anything uh, health-wise, but... Yeah. Yeah. What a legendary, legendary guy. You told a great story, Jim, on an earlier episode of the Big Bass podcast where uh, I, I think it was Phil Jay was sort of trying to throw his weight around and tell you yeah. how he knew the mayor and, and yeah. all that. Well, stuff. I'll, I'll, let me go back to that. Yeah. Because uh, when we were talking about, you know, Phil coming out here and, you know, getting started out and uh, this was early on, probably, let's say, late 70s sometime actually maybe 76 so phil comes into the office 
and uh, comes back to talk to me. And he said, so I still need to get that key from you and I need this access and I need you to tell your staff. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, we're not going to do that. We've never done that for anybody. I, I have no reason to do it for you. But since you are the editor of American Angler magazine, you have media rights and I will honor that and let you know when a lake is going to open and, and you will have the same uh, press access as Harlan Bartlett, who wrote for the Tribune here, uh, Rolla Williams, who wrote for the Union, Lupe Saldana at the LA Times, Bill Rice and Chuck Garrison, and uh, later George Kramer at Western Outdoor News. Uh, we will, you know, we will extend that to you because you have a legitimate explanation as a member of the media. And he was like, no, 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 no. He says, you work. Uh, you work for Pete, right? Well, my boss was Don Mackey, who was in the office right behind mine. And I, and I was I was just really puzzled. He goes, you work for Pete? And I said, no, I work for Don. He goes, you work for Pete? No, I work for Don. And so finally he says, Pete Wilson, everybody in the city works for Pete Wilson, right? He's the mayor. And I said, yeah, well, he is a mayor. <laughs> I've never talked to him. And he goes, uh, I'm going to tell Pete. He's a personal friend of mine. Well, just weeks earlier, I had met a friend, a, a, a guy who's now a friend who's I'm in touch with this week, talked to him yesterday. His name was Rich Garcia. And at the time, uh, Rich had come to San Diego as a, after being a uh, presidential intern out of Yale. I mean, he'd gone to Long Beach State. And he got into a program where you go back trying to uh, bring young people into government. Then he came to San Diego and he worked for Pete Wilson uh, in that office. And so I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you're going to talk to Pete? He goes, yeah. And I said, well, just a second. Hang on. So Phil's sitting in a chair right across from my desk and I pick up the phone and I Colin, he's got a, you know, puzzled look on his face. And I said, uh, hey, Rich, it's Jim. Is the mayor there? And at that, Phil jumps up out of his chair and runs out of the office. I mean, it was classic, <laughs> classic. And awesome. a lot of people would be so embarrassed by a stunt like that. You'd never see or hear from them. Again, but that not was Phil. not his MO. That did that phased him only at that moment of time. So it was it was just crazy. So we had adventures throughout the rest of his uh life. Well, almost the rest of his life until my retirement uh in 2003. And so it was all, always something was coming up and involving him. And if we go back to the reports of giant bass, mm -hmm. uh, we had a situation in which I got a call from the International Game Fish Association. And Elwood K. Harry, who is the executive director, I believe, or president, I'm not sure the title. You guys might know the title that he had at IGFA. Um, anyway, he so he calls and he 
said, oh, you know, Mr. Brown, I, you know, I've, I've uh, heard about you, you know, when our, our staff has verified some, you know, various fish in California and your name's come up. And he said, we have a very curious uh, application here. And uh, he said, I'd like to describe it to you and get your response because uh, you're familiar with the fish in that county. I said, okay. I said, but first, let me guess. <laughs> Out of all of the thousands of fishermen in San Diego County, could his name be Philip M.J.? Why, yes, he was he was stunned that I could name who might have sent him this curious application. And he went on to explain that the bass was presented to the IGFA for application of a new world record. I do not recall the weight that was on it. At one time, I had a copy of the application. And, you know, you might find that at the IGFA. They... Uh, it would have been exceeding the 22-4 bass of George Perry. And uh, it was authenticated as a Florida bass, not by Larry Botroff, who authenticated every other bass here as a state biologist. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, it was signed off allegedly, by a biologist at Stephen F. Austin University in Texas. So <laughs> Phil, of course, was in Texas with American Angler back and forth from San Diego. So I suppose he had made a contact and knew a name to put on the form. Um, and I was really fortunate. And Elwood K. Harry said, hey, we're not going to prove this. You know, we, we, there, there's just, how is it that a world record was caught and nobody knows about it until this application comes to us, but I really need to have it researched, to have it investigated. We're here in Florida. And I said, well, we re really need to have it researched as well, because it's a matter of, excuse me, the integrity and ethics of our programs out here. And so it turned out that Bob Burgreen at that time was either the assistant police chief in San Diego. He later was the chief or he might've been a commander at that time, but I contacted Bob. He was a very avid bass fisherman and he really led the fight to increase the horsepower on city lakes from 10 horsepower to unlimited with a speed limit. And so I called him up, said, Hey Bob, here's the story. Here's the guy. And so he assigned a bass fishing detective to it. I believe his name that is. That is my career dream, Jim Brown. I would like <laughs> to be a bass fishing detective. Well, no, I'm sorry. He was a detective who goes bass fishing and he was oh, a very good fisherman. I, I, he, Mike Davis is that guy. <laughs> okay. His, his name was uh, Danny Angotti. And uh, so he does his research. And he finds out where the fish is, okay? And he contacts a young taxidermist, just starting out in taxidermy. He has the fish and the young man, you know, continues to say, 
oh no this is this was given to me to mount it it was i think you know 23 or 24 pounds and uh yes it i'm i'm gonna be working on it and so the detective says you realize that this is a matter of fraud right and uh you know this is grand larceny and all of a sudden the kid breaks down and says okay okay no it it wasn't that big but he paid me five hundred dollars to <laughs> a lot of money verify that it it was that that size and uh so the the caper was kind of over at that point but he said you know you know how much did the fish actually weigh and he finally gets the information and it was 19 right at 19 pounds and two ounces i believe Oof. guess Great what fish. i remembered the fish and i remembered that earlier in that same year i'd you know been dealing with phil and he calls me up and he goes, hey, buddy, because I mean, everybody was Phil's pal, including me. The day after we would have some kind, kind of battle, I was a pal the next day. And he was kind of one of these guys that he was kind of like sent over from uh, casting in Hollywood to be kind of a cheesy con man. And it was, hey, buddy, how are we doing? <laughs> Going through all this stuff. And he goes, yeah, I, I want to give you guys some help. Your uh, scale at Miramar isn't correct. And I went, yeah, it probably is off. Our scales are not certified. And you have to understand the scales at most lakes were in a breezeway on the dock. Or in the case of Miramar, it was right up next to the office, about 50 feet from the lake, up, coming up the gangway from the boat dock. And so, you know, you turn your back and you look and then some guy's hanging on the uh, uh, spring scale there's no way to keep it certified the county wouldn't even come out and try to keep them certified and so we understood that and he so phil says so yeah i got i got a a, a bass and it weighed 19.2 on your scale but i took it over to uh vons in the the market in mira mesa and i i got a signed affidavit for, affidavit from the uh meat department manager that this fish weighed over 20 pounds. Well, that's a benchmark. You know, 20 pounds is like your 50th or 75th birthday. It's a benchmark. A, a 20 pound bass is more than one pound famous than a 19 pound bass. And he wanted to get into that 20 pound class. Yep. So I had my staff go put weights in our scale until it got to 19.2, then take the weights and go to a certified scale and weigh them. And sure enough, ours was off, but it was just a few ounces. I think it was, you know, overweighing by three or four ounces. So I get back to Phil. I said, Phil, it just doesn't pan out that I can support that fish as being over 20. And I'm really confused because uh, the staff didn't remember you buying a permit that day. You just drove up and put the bass. And so the theory was that he'd caught it the night before poaching off the dam, which is where the poachers hung out at Miramar in the uh, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, 
anyway, uh, that part, that one fell apart. So one of the joys I had in my job was debunking the nonsense that was created by individuals who I felt were doing something dishonest or unethical. Uh, we had a number of fishing guides sprouting up in San Diego County. And uh, I got many calls weekly to help fishermen coming to San Diego, including quite a few from Florida, Ken, because they couldn't catch any big bass in that state anymore. So they were coming <laughs> to San Diego. And uh, you had taken them all. Zing. <laughs> you had misappropriated them. Only 20,000 of them. Probably under cover of darkness. They were this big when we took them. <laughs> we grew them better. We nurtured them better. Anyway, that Whoa. that particular episode with Phil went on for 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 quite a quite a bit, and uh, you know he'd be just screaming, going bananas. But the next time he wanted to pull a stunt or needed something, I was his buddy again. It was kind of back and forth, and he yeah. had a certain charm to him, and I, I'll admit to that. Um, like a lot of guys that might be called a con man. He did have a certain amount of charm to him. Uh, I have some friends in San Diego, one of the best crawdad fishermen ever in San Diego. He comes out of the saltwater fishing community and he was dear friends with, with Phil and had great respect for F Phil's fishing ability. And he knew him on a different level and said, you know, he, he was really a good guy. Uh, but I know he was up to some shenanigans. That's a mild way of putting it. So, yeah, Phil was was just a classic to uh, to deal with. And uh, to be really honest, what he did really left a foul taste in your mouth. But that's, there was this something about him where you kind of enjoyed talking to him the next time. A charming rogue. I mentioned that we that we had a number of guys. Uh, it's it's like in those states where they say, yes, we have a number of great uh, guides here. Uh, they're also known as unemployed loggers or unemployed truckers, <laughs> and because they have a boat and they're good fishermen, and now they're going to guide. And so my entire aim was to try to find which guides thought a guide job was to show a client how many big bass they could catch or their job was to operate the boat provide the gear and put their client on fish and so any number of people who thought they should have been uh, supported or advertised by us as legitimate guides I couldn't and the same thing happened with the guys going to the tackle companies, showing them pictures of their bass and saying, I'm a great fisherman in San Diego and I need some rods and reels and lures and things like that. And so I'd get calls from the tackle companies uh, and they'd say, you know, this guy wants to be on our pro team. You know, what do you know about him? And, you know, it was either, yeah, that guy's a good guy, good fisherman. We have no problems with him or no, that guy's. A chronic poacher we have terrible problems with him always going into the restricted area uh that's I, I i couldn't endorse his 
request for your tackle or your boat or whatever. Jim, we got a good question here from South Jersey fishermen. I don't know if you can see it on your screen, but I do. He, uh, he says, are, are most of the Florida strain bass non-existent in California anymore? Or is the genetics so watered down that they're not really the kind of fish that can reach record status anymore? Okay. So I, I will, I want to say one thing. I'm not a biologist. I've spent the better part of my life around someone who I think, uh, is the best warm water biologist in the history of this country. And that was Larry Botroff. And I've always been careful to emphasize that I manage the lakes, the staff and the public and Larry managed the fisheries resource. And so I'm rather loath. I will not, I refuse to try to come off as an expert on this subject. However, I have talked to Larry and other biologists about it and, and we have, you know, discussed it over the years. And I am in no position to really give a good answer um, because this is an answer you need to really be able to hang your hat on. It re requires some science and some knowledge that uh, I can have an opinion, but I'm not capable of uh, technically, scientifically, and I, I just won't, I can't venture into that area, but we do have some state biologists who've been studying these kinds of things uh, since Larry retired. And I, I'd have to say they would be best to address this. On the other hand, we know that the Florida bass so dominated the northern strain of largemouth black bass here that everything became Florida-dized. Uh, in fairly short order, when you have a lake with thousands of northern strain bass in it, and you put a few hundred Floridas in, and in three years, almost everything seems to be a Florida bass, um, it's, it's a matter of a couple of things that I can tell you that Larry told me impacted this genetic relationship. One, and I think this is very important, the Florida bass spawn earlier in the year than the northern strain bass. This gives their, their, their progeny, progeny a great <clears throat> benefit in that pretty soon there are going to be northern bass for them to eat. So you've got anybody who's lived on a boat dock or been around a boat dock after a spawn, we'll report seeing one bass that's two inches long with a bass that's an inch and a half in its mouth, head first. And so the Florida bass had the benefit then of dominating the northerns that hatched. So that, that was a factor. The other factor was the genetic superiority as described to me by both Larry and Orville Ball was that the offspring of a Florida bass and a northern bass was going to have the greatest characteristics of the Florida. They were going to be the dominant fish. So that's about as much as I can go into in good faith relative to the biology of it. Uh, you know, we're talking about uh... I did an article a couple of years ago for uh, the Game and Fish West magazine. I had a chance to talk to several 
uh, bass biologist in the state of California, and I asked him one question to start with, and I said, is there currently a world record largemouth bass swimming in the state of California? And, and granted, there's some private water out there where maybe they're still stocking a lot of rainbows and stuff, but they all said, no, there's not. And uh, I understand that we can never know for certain one way or another, but I thought that was really interesting because I know that a lot of the stocking programs of rainbow trout in bass water have, have stopped. They're expensive. They're frowned upon in some communities and so forth. I thought it was interesting because that's, that's kind of the end of an era that started in the late 60s with uh, right. somebody like uh, James Bates and, and really kind of ended with Dottie at 25-1. Uh, that seems to have been uh, 2006. the sunset in 2006, yeah, at 25-1 right. of the California giant bass era. And that's that's sad, even to a Florida guy like me, that right. uh, that California had such a nice long run, but but couldn't close the deal. Yeah, I, you know, you have the argument of hybrid vigor uh, put forth regularly in interviews and stories by Doug Hannon, and so his issue was early on that the Florida bass or the integrades as opposed to hybrids, because they are integrades as opposed to true hybrids, that would be sterile, um, was that, that that first offspring of a Florida strain bass and a northern bass would have what he described as hybrid vigor. But I, again, not being a biologist, uh, I, I I can't really comment on that, but that's one of the other big theories out there. And uh, I think that the question uh, from Racer Are You uh, is a good one in that regard. You know, I, I had been led to believe for decades that that hybrid vigor, that first generation of the Northern F1. and the Florida was the one that had the greatest propensity for growth, the F1s, as Terry says. Right. But more recently, I've talked to a number of biologists who are kind of in the business of, of trying to grow the biggest possible bass. And they tell me that the pure Florida is the one that, that gets the biggest. So I'm, I'm confused. I'm certainly not a biologist either. Uh, I do not even play one on TV. Uh, so that's, that's very interesting to me. If I could um, comment on that, Ken, yeah. Larry and I were asked to uh, Texas, of course, with their Cheryl Lunker program. Ha! I laugh at Cheryl Lunker. Very dedicated to trying to produce a bigger bass than the rest of us. And their biologists came out here, and Larry and I went out in the shock boat. So when they arrived with their tanker car, Larry was able to give them some very large bass. I think these fish were probably eight, nine, 10 pounds out of Lake Hodges. And we, Larry in particular, was interested in why they wanted bass from San Diego as opposed to bass from Florida. Terry, can, can you cover Ken's ears or mute things for a minute? No, I'd say we turn the volume up. Okay, well, the, what happened was the the Texas biologists had gotten some bass from Florida and worked with them, 
And they were absolutely convinced that the Florida strain that came here on that second stocking in either late 59 or early 60 after the first batch was destroyed because they had ick. The biologists felt that those fish were from a strain of the largest of the large Florida bass. And they had traced them and found that the bass in Hodges had the highest percentage of Florida strain genetics that they wanted. And that's what they went after. <laughs> and Terry, I, I know Ken resents your laughing, but I'm just <laughs> trying to be honest and tell the truth here. All yeah, I know yeah, is that in, in, in California and Texas, until you guys got Florida bass there, I think your state records were under two pounds. I believe that's absolutely correct. <laughs> I, will, I stand by that. 14 statement. pounds for California. One, one, 14 one, pounds. Once again, you have proven yourself as a big bass expert, Ken. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, goodness. Let, let me jump back to Phil J for just a moment, because I think this is kind of interesting. Uh, aspect of mr j's story you know in the late 90s an, an organization popped up uh run by uh, uh i believe a tampa car dealer named uh, mickey owens it was called the big bass record club and they uh they had a bounty on the world record largemouth bass for a few years at at one point i think it reached eight million dollars if you caught uh, a world record largemouth and had it certified by igfa well it just so happens that Phil Jay was the only angler ever to be expelled by the Big Bass <laughs> Record Club. They would yeah. not accept his uh, his membership money. I was actually on the uh, board of governors of that operation, and uh, Phil Jay, the only guy who was not allowed to participate, tells and, you a little bit about him right there. And 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 it would have been Phil's nature to laugh that off and tell the story himself later, you know, but naturally he was being uh, discriminated against. Of course. But he could say that with a smile and a chuckle. Yeah. The, the charming rogues of the bass fishing world to me are, are quite interesting. Um, and, and of course, Phil Jay is one of them. You know, not to cast aspersions upon this gentleman. I, I knew him. I liked him. He was he was another one of those charming guys who who told some big stories. Uh, it was a guy named John Fox. Uh, John passed oh, away gosh. not that long ago, and and right. you know, John had been kicked out of BASS, and John had had claimed. In well, he was running American Angler. He was running American Angler. I mean, that's right. not why he got kicked out. That's not why I got kicked but, out. But yeah. Phil J was running American Angler. Yeah, with Phil John J was Fox. running American Angler. That's yes. Yeah. And Fox had a had a booming TV show. Fox had yeah. a big TV show. Fox is a very talented angler. Uh a charming guy who he, he ran ads in the back of Bassmaster magazine classifieds for years, claiming that he and his guided clients had had caught multiple fish over 20 pounds in the stick marsh. And, and I just think it's it's fascinating to me that uh these guys not only 
get away with it in some fashion, but they, they pay no meaningful price right. for, for some of these exaggerations. And I don't know oh, what no. you can do to uh, necessarily put a stop to that. But as you pointed out earlier with Phil Jay and running away from the, the call to the mayor, it might embarrass them for a few moments, but they're back the next they're day. They're back. Yeah, no. Yeah. Could Would one of you guys read that great question from Lure Lab and give me a chance to answer it? Yeah, so it's uh, it says, Jim, Article 1, Section 25 of the California Constitution has been used to legally access Los Angeles lakes for after hours. In fact, I'm doing it now. What should we who do so now? What should uh, we who I do guess? so? No. Oh, okay. okay. Which is a, a strange way. Come on, Lure Lab, there's a better way to phrase that question. Yeah. yeah, but so I, I think he gave a good shot to quite a an important question, and I'm I'll gonna try have to, to look that up. Yeah, I'll try to answer that question because that is what I use. I, I was asked by a state senator some years ago uh, to assist the L.A. Department of Water and Power so that they could open lower and Upper Haywe Reservoir on the Owens River before the water leaves the Owens Valley via the aqueduct and goes to Los Angeles. Um, I will say that LA Water and Power was not looking for any help. And uh, what happened is that he forced the, their hand and the Owens Valley Warm Water Fishing Association had been pressing him. And I believe the, the association, which had a few people who were warm water anglers in that area, was primarily one man who ironically was previously the L.A. Water and Power locksmith. And I believe he had been terminated or that there was something. So he was really passionate about trying to get Lower and Hay, Upper Haywe back open. I saw my job as, and the city of San Diego told them, yes, Jim is available for two days to come up there and write a report. No problem. We'll loan him to you. So in that process, we did find uh, the... California Constitution actually does provide a level of access for any citizen. And in that case, the access was based on a single fact, not the idea that the Constitution says I can fish anywhere. And so people shouldn't gather that from this question. The issue at hand was at one time, a portion of the property that constituted those reservoirs had been state of California property belonging to the people of the state of California. And therefore, it held that that right was not extinguishable. Okay. And that's yeah, in particular, that, that particular section of the California Constitution provides that Californians have a constitutional right to fish in all public lands except fish hatcheries that are owned by the state. So, yeah. Right. So that means Castaic, you can fish at night. Uh, but now, what about private reservoirs 
that are owned by counties like San Diego it, or, or it did it did, it did not it did not apply to us. It it applied only in the case that I was involved in because uh, those were public waters of the state of California, not water supply reservoirs developed by the city of San Diego Water Department or for or that Ventura month. County or for Ventura right. County in the case of casitas or. And, and but I, but I think that's that's a good thing to be explored on a legal basis if any politicians uh, expressed a concern about angling in California. I, I I see a lot of lip service to it. I've seen a few who seriously have tried to do something. But that's a great issue. You know, let take it take it to the state legislature, and let's hammer it out and see what. Where, the, where it falls. I do know that in the case of Upper and Lower Haywe, we were able to gain access. And in the end, LA Water and Power was happy with the minimalist plan that I gave them. There was no requirement to provide a launch ramp. There was no requirement to do anything other than not throw people off of what were once state properties that had been transferred to LA Water and Power. And uh, it, it was, I'll, I'll just briefly, I've got to tell you, this is one of my favorite stories. So Glenn Singley was in charge, who later became an, the head of all LA, LA Water and Power. He had been the Eastern Sierra superintendent or head guy for that area. Nobody in LA Water and Power wanted to be forced to have me come and suggest how they could provide for the public. I'll be really honest about that, and they would be too. But we, as we were walking, uh, it was a group of us. So I was there as a consultant. Glenn Singley was there with his staff, and they had some private consultants on biology who were there with them. And as we walked on a trail at Lower Haywe, which was our first stop, I said to the biologists, do you ever see the uh, desert tortoise up here? And they started laughing at me. And, you know, I was kind of surprised. I mean, you know, you travel there through the desert and, and the high desert. And, you know, sometimes you see a tortoise dead on the road. And, you know, and like I was stunned that they were laughing at me. And uh, so one of their biologists said, Everyone knows that the Little Lake Escarpment has always prevented access to this area by the desert tortoise. And I said, okay, well, I, I honestly didn't know that. We walked around a turn and the biggest desert tortoise I've ever seen in my life was crossing the path. <laughs> Glenn Singley looks at his biologists walks away from them and he and I walked together trailed by all of the biologists I came home <laughs> and I wrote a report and I said you guys can do this provide a parking area at a couple of spots at each lake I'll help you identify it you've already got some wide spots there you need a trash can and you need a portable toilet and that'll keep the health department happy and then you need your staff to open the, the gate 
at sunrise, close it at sunset, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do with this, right. you can probably work with the state on, on that because we used to have a law in San Diego on sunrise to sunset fishing. And, um, they proceeded to open it. Was it hugely popular? Nah, not so much, but people enjoyed going to these lakes where they could catch a few bass, they could catch a few trout, they could catch catfish, they could catch carp. And it was not a big, it's not like 12,000 people showing up when we opened Lake Hodges, let me say that. But it was very, very significant as something in which LA Water and Power, which allows no one on any of their reservoirs in, in Los Angeles County that they, that they allow access to. So it was really a huge thing that these two LA Water and Power Reservoirs opened. Now, here's what really upsets me. After 9-11, many agencies were allowed to say, we have to have a closure as a result of possible terrorism until we assess it. We did that in San Diego for a few days. Worked with the F FBI uh, and, uh, and the San Diego police and the San Diego County Sheriff on threat assessment on our reservoirs. LA Water and Power closed it down and have never reopened them. You know, to me, it kind of tells you their attitude toward the public on fishing. I would yeah. be a little embarrassed after 22 years to still have used an emergency act to, of closure and not reopen something. Yep. So. I actually fished Hiwi. It's one of the bassiest looking lakes in in California. It's amazing. Right. Uh, yeah. And we would go up there, a buddy of mine, from about probably 86 to 90, 91, maybe 92. Uh, and we'd go fly fish up in the Owens Valley. And uh, we always took our float tubes with us because on the way home, we would stop by and illegally fish Hiwi right. on the way out. And, yeah. it, it, you know, for being at, what, 7,000 feet of elevation, it had some pretty damn good bass fishing. Did it? Yeah. Yeah, I really, I, I'd heard that it was pretty decent, but I, I don't know firsthand. And I see we've got another question. And I, I really love the opportunity to for us to enjoy questions from your viewers that are, that are yeah. coming in because they raised some great points. And we have yeah. one now. Yeah, so it says, uh, this is from uh, Kevin Mena, and it says, does Jim know if Barrett Lake has Floridas in it now? The bass in there seem to be getting more and more like Florida's much bigger fish. I think Kevin is making a good call and a good observation on this because when Lake Marina, which had been stocked with Florida's, spilled, that resulted in the first uh, introduction to my knowledge. You know, we've always had bucket biologists around. Yeah. But Barrett was not easy to access. So it's very possible that those fish that washed in from Marina uh, coming down Cottonwood Creek, entering, entering the Hauser Arm, 
came in in small numbers, and he's right. The scale counts that Larry Botroff was doing on those bass showed that they were edging more into the headed towards the Florida range as opposed to in the northern strain bass range. Subsequently, after Larry's retirement, uh, the Department of Fish and Game has taken a look at those fish and they have observed that there has been a gradual increase in the Florida influence at Barrett. And if you go back to what I said earlier, we had reservoirs with thousands of northerns be taken over by Florida's in a few years. So I think Kevin is definitely on the right track on this subject. Um, mm -hmm. It is what it is. Um, it is wh when I opened Barrett, uh, it was for the fact that we would have an absolute novelty fishery that was a throwback to the old days. Oh, we couldn't put amazing. a launch ramp in there. Yeah, there no launch ramp. Uh, rental boats and shore fishing and float tubes and kayaks only, and maybe as phenomenal fishing as anybody's had. And that relates to the fact that Larry's studies showed, you know, looking at bass side by side, we had smallmouth spots, Florida's, and our northern strain, that the absolute easiest to catch to the surprise of many people in smallmouth country was a smallmouth. That was the absolute easiest to catch, followed very closely by the northern strain, and then the spots, and the most difficult were the Floridas. And that helps to also let people understand why I designed the regulations the way I did as a no-kill fishery. It's not that I'm opposed to fish being taken out, but with the northerns being so much easier to catch, it was going to facilitate that takeover much more quickly by the Floridas. And to some degree that happens anyway, because if you go there and you catch 50 bass, or uh, as some people say, they catch 100 bass every time they go there. Yeah. Um, if, if you take a look at that, the lakes open primarily in the summer, the temperatures are warm, and there is always some hooking mortality involved. And I, I relied on the data from the very first catch and release conference in US, which was held at Humboldt State, I think 1975, and a biologist from Texas by the name of Edgar Seidenstecker had done everything he could to describe bass mortality as a result of angling. And so we saw uh, certain things that Larry confirmed by his own work. Number one, the higher the water the temperature, the greater the mortality. And number two, the, if you're catching more of the easy to catch fish, then the harder to catch fish you're killing off inadvertently when you release those fish more of the northern bass than the florida so that was you know that helps me to try to explain why when i wrote the standards and request the department of fish and game regulations for barrett it was on that basis and it's not unfair to say maybe we've reached a point where there's not enough northern strain in there to try to protect or maybe as opposed to that maybe that's harsh 
there's an inevitability here. So should we change the reg? Who knows? Barrett, I, I was lucky enough to fish Barrett. I think it was the fourth week that it was open. Uh, we had to get tickets through Ticketmaster. Uh, and <laughs> seriously, it was online. Um, or you called. I think it was back when you had to call. What year did it open it again, Jim? Uh, you're going to have to look at your records. But I, one of my favorite stories has to do with Barrett and Ticketmaster. But you go ahead, and then I'll tell mine. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was living in Idaho at the time, I believe, and I had two friends of mine, Scott Whitmer, uh, and and a guy named Steve Brockman, and I came down from Idaho, and you know, Steve put in for Ticketmaster, and we ended up getting into Ticketmaster about 15 minutes after it opened. And by that time. They had uh, already sold all the rental boats and parking spots for four weeks. So we got in a spot for the the, the fourth week that it was open, and uh, it was insane. So we took a troll motor with us. We took two batteries with us, uh, our gear, and it was essentially just frog rods um, and you know maybe a worm rod and a swim bait rod or something. And between the three of us that day, we had over 300 fish. And the the smallest was probably 12, 13 inches. But I don't know how many three and a half to four pound fish we caught that day. It was right. sick. Yeah, it, 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 triple hookups. I mean, it. I think on our first cast, we had a triple hookup on frogs. No, yeah, nuts. without a question. And uh, how about two bass on one lure? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was multiple times, you know. I mean, yeah, it, it was crazy. So here, so just to refresh your memory, when we first opened it, it was all on a postcard basis. And, you know, those squirrel cage things that they, they put things in, they spin it, and yeah. they pull your ticket out. Yeah. Our carpenter made a squirrel cage so big i could get inside of it so <laughs> we we had this giant squirrel cage with a handle on the outside and everyone had to turn in a card a, a postcard and we advised them that if we had more than one card they they and, and they were picked they'd be tossed out which we did to a number of them and we had thousands and thousands of cards. And it did tie up the clerical staff in our division of the water department doing this. And they were great. They, they enjoyed it. They enjoyed their interactions with the public that we had. And to be really honest, there were people in the administration in the water department that resented the success of our program the public interest in our program. And they decided that the clerical staff, which had to support other elements of the water division of the division um, was being taken away from important thing work for others. So you're Jim, you're going to have to do away with it. So I think we did the, the uh, cards for two or three years. So they said, you're going to have to, 
use a service like Ticketmaster. So I called Ticketmaster and I met with the lady who was the manager of the Ticketmaster office in San Diego. And I said, you know, um, people are crazy when a lake is opening. We had 12,000 people we know about, and probably more when we opened Lake Hodges. And the interest is running so high at Barrett, I'm really, really concerned. And so she starts laughing. She goes, Jim, we handled Frank Sinatra's return to the stage. <laughs> we did we did uh, the Rolling Stones. We do every big show. We, we fill the sports arena. That's 12,000 and some seats. You don't have to worry. And, and I said, well, I'm not really worried. I just wanted to mention that there's, a, there, there's quite a bit of demand. She said, don't worry about it. I want you to come down to our office when we open things up. And I said, I'll absolutely come back down. I saw that comment. I, I'll absolutely. <laughs> Genius. Genius, BTC. And I had, I, I had the greatest office manager in the world, Sharon Smith. And I've gotten a lot of credit for the good things that she did working for me. And so Sharon and I went down to the Ticketmaster offices. And they had brought in extra people. They had these banks of people on phones. The phone, you know, they were made sure people understood the phones weren't going to be turned on until I think 6 p.m. or something. Yeah. Sitting there watching. And all of a sudden, she's getting calls from other areas of the country. So <laughs> people were people were pretty clever. They were going to the Ticketmaster offices where it was already six o'clock in Arizona. Yeah. <laughs> Colorado, you know, mountain time. So people yeah. were already trying. So they were getting calls from their staff, other Ticketmaster staff operatives saying, what are we doing? They said, no, no, it's got to be Pacific Standard Time, six o'clock. Time comes around and all of a sudden, every phone is picked up. It looked like a fake telethon. You know, they're all just grabbing the phone, <laughs> blah, 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 and they're, they're taking the stuff. And so she said, you see, this is nothing for us to handle. And all of a sudden, all the phones went dead. Every phone in the area. I'm not talking about the Ticketmaster office. Every phone in that geographic area went dead. <laughs> she calls the phone company. Is She's just going crazy because here's this huge surge and this is their first time handling it for us. The phone company said, we don't know what happened. And I don't know what this means, but they said, the calls coming in blew the trunk line. I don't know what the trunk line is, but it blew the trunk line and shut everything down. So Frank Sinatra did pretty good. The Rolling Stones did pretty good. I thought we did better. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I had never well, heard that with, story. Let's deal with Brian the Carpenter's question. Terry, is it true you once had two backlashes on a single cast? I, I, I don't know what lies Brian's coming up with. I actually had four backlashes on a single cast. I mean, I can believe come that. on, BTC, give credit where credit's due. 
anyway, we got we got a a question from Bob Stevens. Uh, Jim, what's your view on forward facing sonar and the other technical tech other such technology on fisheries? So Bob Stevens, you're looking at, at a guy who's 76 years old, and so is a lot of his tackle. Uh, I, I am not a guy. I don't have a, I no longer have a bass boat and the bass boat I had wasn't very good. Um, and I am kind of fascinated by it. Uh, I have a friend, uh, Rob McGargle, who is an outstanding fisherman who is just doing incredibly well and raving about his forward facing sonar learning how to use it properly, learning how to fish properly with it. And I think probably the gist of Mr. Stevens' question is, are we going maybe too far in terms of modern technology uh, with regard to sport fishing for bass? And I got to say that that question is really out of my wheelhouse because I want to explain that when I started fishing the lakes, it was rare that we had the money to get a rental boat. We usually fished off the shore. Then when we had a rental boat, uh, it had a rental motor on it. Then to save money, we went to Montgomery Wards and bought a little Sea King kicker, put it on the city rental boats, and we would go fishing. My dad, who was a great bass fisherman, he he used his own sonar and that was a line in the bow with a weight on it, one in the middle of the boat and one in the stern to find rocks and drop-offs. That was his form of sonar. And based on his <laughs> career in the Navy, <clears throat> he was terrific with triangulation to find rock piles at Lake Sutherland. And so not long after that, we saw the first sonar units come out, a little green box that you put in your boat and you, you know, had a battery to it. And so <clears throat> I would say uh, technology has continued and continued and continued. And there's a very good argument as, as to whether or not uh, that is a concern. Have, have we gone too far with, with the science of this? Uh, is it unsporting? I don't think so, uh, but it has changed bass fishing. I've never used it. I've never had the benefit, but the folks who are using it, uh, like my friend Rob McGargle, are having terrific fishing. So uh, he releases all of his fish. So I don't, and, and he also isn't fishing in tournaments. So I don't know if it makes a difference that he's simply catching a lot of fish with that. I don't know if that's a question for tournament organizers to limit it. If it is, I think it would be shot down quickly by the industry that sells this. So, um, <laughs> yep. I, I mean, I think, I think it is a good provocative and honest question. I don't know if anyone has an answer to it or if it has an answer. So I, I, I harken back to 1975 when Minnesota tried to ban the paper graph, um, you know, and every bit of uh, 
every bit of technology with respect to electronics that's come out since then, side scan, 360, uh, and now forward-facing sonar, to me, uh, and this is my old-fashioned way of looking at things, is that it takes away the, the angler's ability to find fish on instinct. Um, fish that'll eat, I should say. I mean, you right. know, because you, you're, you go out and, and with forward-facing sonar, yeah, you have instinct that, yeah, there's going to be a fish off this point. Um, and you can actually see how it reacts to a bait or something like that. But, but without it, and you're using images that don't show fish moving with respect to bait or, bait or lure movement, uh, um, you have to act on instinct to only make three casts there or, or sit on it because you know that those yeah. fish are going to eat. That, that's my opinion. Um, but yeah. I, 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 I moved away for a little bit uh jim I, I just wanted to pull this out this is my new toy uh this is circa uh 1950 1946 something like that it's a langley lure cast that my my dear friend bill sonnet uh sent to me as a gift um and i fished this with a period action rod uh down in florida right after i cast and caught a ton of fish on this thing. And so if I ever get to San Diego, you and I are going to go to Barrett, and we're going to throw these old, I got another one here, an old head and pal uh, rod. Uh, I'll bring some old stuff, and, and you and I can go fish Barrett I, and catch a bunch of fish. I love that, Terry. I just gave my head and pal to a friend who is a very avid collector, of head uh -huh. of Langley reels. My dad, oh, really? myself, yeah, my dad was a machinist in the Navy and he had very good friends at Langley. So it was not uncommon for us to go over to the Langley uh, company because yeah. Langley's Langley provided uh, machined products during World War II. Yeah. When their products were no longer needed, they converted to fishing reels. I've got exactly. a couple right up. I've got a couple up here, including a Langley fly reel right here on my bookcase. And I'm an old lures guy. And I'm just going to yeah. tilt my camera there a little bit. I want everybody to see that wall. The top of that wall is covered with lures, many wood with glass eyes that have not been manufactured in over a half a century and yeah. my idea of a fun trip would be to get guys that like to bass fish and gals that like to bass fish and say you have to have your rod reel and lures made prior to whatever date is agreed upon i yeah. think probably 1950 is a good date but whatever they yeah. want and golfers have had a blast doing this. There's a company that goes around, maybe more than one. They go to golf clubs and they say, would you like us to set up a hickory shaft golf tournament for you? And they oh. do it. It's yeah. pretty cool. And so invariably. The, the, national, uh, the National Fishing Lure Collectors Club, the NFLCC, actually holds a tournament 
once a year yes, with vintage tackle. And it has to be, I think it's pre-1950. Bill Sonnel yeah. will probably watch this and correct me. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, but it's, it's uh, Bill is the guy that got me into this. I fought him for a long time and he, he finally wore me out and I succumbed and I've got a new lease on life. <laughs> get get out those old uh, Shakespeare presidents and Fluger Supremes and let's go at it. Yeah, let's do it, Jim. <laughs> I, I, I love the idea of it. Yeah. Okay, so we got Killer B Marine, our buddy Izzy out of uh, San Pedro or Pedro uh, is asking, uh, he heard a rumor that a 22 pound fish got shocked up out of Paris recently. Has anybody heard of it? I have not heard of it. Jim, have you heard about it? Or no, no, no. I ha I haven't. Is it impossible? No. Is it likely? No. Is it a rumor, man? Yeah, it is. And I think if you hang around uh, a, a few bars in the Paris Winchester area. You probably find any number of guys that can tell you about the twenty-three pound bass they caught. So, yeah, Izzy, yeah. go to Paris, catch a twenty-two. <laughs> if let me say this: if it was shocked, we would know about it. If it was shocked, the Department of Fish and Wildlife would advise us. I believe, unless. There's a Phil J. Jr. that was on that boat, and now anything could happen. <laughs> All right, but but I think let's go back to one of our previous conversations with you. Uh, maybe I'm making this up in my head. It's highly, highly likely. But I thought you had told us that you guys would never report how big the fish were that Botroff shocked up at the San Diego Lakes. Did did you Not say that, really. or am I making that no, up? No, we, we 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 never. First of all, we never shocked a world record, and it was I, I I spoke to Larry after we talked about that, and I I asked him what the biggest fish he ever shocked was because, you know, I was with Larry on one percent of his shock trips. I mean, he was out there all the time mm -hmm. before I was even hired into that job, and so. He said, oh, gosh, I, you know, I, I've got all the reports here and, uh, you know, I'd have to look at it. Jim, I I don't I don't think I remember anything really, really approaching the record. So, you know, I, I got the feeling that that maybe somewhere around 16 or 17 pounds. Uh, I was with him one time when we had a fish in that range um, and he saw a lot more than I did. But. Right. Yeah, no, it, it, he he would not have kept that a secret. Of course, okay. uh, those California lakes, they're deep, they're clear. Those fish are spawning in 12, 15, 20 feet of water sometimes. So I'm guessing that they don't often come in within range uh, of a shock electro fishing boat. I'm sorry to use the proper biologist term, an electro fishing boat. You call it a mm -hmm. shocking boat. They don't like that. Yeah. Is that a, is that a fair statement? I don't think entirely. Uh, yes, a lot of these reservoirs are big, deep, and clear. Um, a lot of them for many years were not, did not have that level of water quality. They tended to be very rich in nutrients and they were often, you know, tannic to coffee 
to, to green, uh, usually somewhere in between all of that. And, you know, our people would put down a secchi, secchi di disc to see what the visibility was on a fairly regular basis. And so, no, I mean, the visibility was darn poor at times. The advantage we had was that most of Larry's shocking was at night. And we knew that the fish okay. moved back to the shore at night. You know, you could, you could shock a shoreline in the daytime, come back, you know, catch X number of fish, net X number, come back at night, and that number would be many multiple times more as the fish came back to the shoreline. Pretty smart. Pretty dang smart. So we, there was another question. Um, uh, I saw the name of the uh, person that contacted us, Clay Williamson, but I did not get a chance to read the, there it is. Yeah, I said they should do a camera phone video of these giant chalked up, would do a lot to get people headed there. Um, Fair point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, what else do we, what other questions do we have, Nathan? Do you think shock, uh, stocking of trout only exposed the giant bass making them raise off the bottom when seeing the schools? What? Um, I, I think I understand. What, what you're getting at, and there is no question that the bass respond immediately to the stocking of trout. And I'll give you two examples. Uh, one is that when we were stocking private hatchery trout, he would hose down, he'd use a pump to hose down the area before he stocked the fish. And that was with Whitewater Trout Farm. So two things were happening. There was the significant vibration of the stocking truck right around the boat dock, which was a non-fishing area, which a lot of big bass, especially at Miramar and Murray, were notorious for hanging out in the shade of. And it kept them close to the conveyor belt that brought them trout because they were right next to the launch ramp. And yeah. so as soon as that shock or as soon as that boat or truck showed up to plant trout, the bass all of a sudden took an interest and made themselves appear. So with regard to his question, do they raise off the bottom when seeing the schools? I suspect they do because they raised they, they became visible, uh, whether it was from the bottom or hiding behind structure, the minute we saw water sprayed onto the surface of the reservoir from the pump. And I think also from the vibration of the truck. Here's a great story. In my opinion, there was a really nice guy that I knew by the name of Larry Giles, and he was a, the president of the San Diego chapter of Bassmasters. Larry went to Miramar. He was a very good fisherman. And I said, Larry, you know, it's really crazy. When, and he had not caught a really big bass at that point. I said, but when we shock Miramar, water is sprayed on the, the surface. Now, 
we know that water sprayed on the surface, uh, whether it's the ocean or the lake, actually mimics bait fish being attacked on the surface to some degree. Sure does. Larry was, do it. yeah, and Larry was entirely on the other side of the lake, and he said, "I disconnected the hose to my live well, and I shot the water in this cove for a while." And then I cast out and I got my biggest bass of all time, which I think was maybe 12 pounds. Wow. Interesting concept. Yeah. So I, I have similar experiences at Lake Casitas. So they used to stock Casitas on Thursday. And we would try to go up there on Friday to, to fish Casitas. Well, right. there was one time I went up there on thursday when they were actually dumping the df or the 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 hatchery truck would get there at like 10 o'clock in the morning and literally i'm fishing the rock pile which is on you know the log boom right there at the uh at the launch ramp and no shit the the stocking truck backs down onto the ramp and all of a sudden these black images appear from the depths and they yeah. lower the chute they open the valve and the trout start getting dumped in and they're all drunk up from being you know trucked 300 miles right and it it turned into a tuna boil right there at the ramp yeah um, and this is back in the day when they're stocking threes right three to a pound yeah um, well that's what the state said they were but our our surveys <laughs> when we actually weighed them and knitted them, it showed that they were five and sometimes seven to the pound, but there were times <laughs> they did stock three to the pound fish, but that was my beef beef with fish and game is one of our biggest problem are trout chuckers. And some of our most effective bass fishermen, in fact, many of them were actually terrific trout fishermen first because they had to make bait once they got there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, uh, when you're planting more bite size trout, uh, you're now not just attracting 12 pound bass that are eating three pound trout. You're, you're attracting every bass in the lake. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and then to, to answer his question even more, uh, do do fish, do the bass move up off the bottom and look up? Yeah, I mean, that's how the whole dead stick swim bait thing got started. Uh, we talked about that a little bit when we had Jerry Rago on uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, one of the deadliest techniques of fishing a swim bait back in the heyday of the swim bait, which was the late 90s and, and, and through the early 2000s, was to take a castaic, a big castaic wood bait, or any big bait that would would uh, float, and you throw right. it out over 40 feet of water on a point and just let it sit there. And then two, three, ten minutes later, it would get crushed by this fish that came up out of, you know, who knows how deep that fish was, came up out of, you know, 40 foot of water to destroy this trout, and it ends right. up being a swim bait. So yeah, they well, absolutely it trained those fish to look up. And and that coincides with the 
the little info packets that came with lures about, you know, throwing a surface lure, let's say a hula popper. Yeah. Uh, and so, it, you know, you open up the directions on how to fish the hula popper or any of those big surface baits. And actually, I think that they, they could be sued for causing lung cancer because they almost always said, cast out, let it sit and take a few puffs on your cigarette. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. They're promoting smoking. Bastards. Yeah. <laughs> We've got it's, a great question here, Terry. I think you should yeah. ask this one. Yeah, this is, uh, this is from our, our buddy, David Zhang, uh, who is, uh, I guess, racer RU. Uh, see, Ken was right. Terry talks too much. Ken, do you have a PB from California? I can answer that right, right off the bat. I don't think Ken has ever been to the communist state of California. I've been, I've been to the, uh, the people's Republic of California several times <laughs> and, uh, my personal best from California, five ten. Uh, which is, I don't know. I can't, I can't quite make that nickname stick for David, but, um, my personal best is about seven pounds caught from mission Viejo 2008, seven, somewhere in there. Uh, but Who the hell yes. do you know on mission Viejo? I know Joe Everett and I know George Coniglio. So there, ha, yeah. <laughs> ha, Terry Batiste. I know guys oh, who have caught fish over 16 pounds. How about that? Uh, but uh, yes, Terry does talk so too do much. I. I think everybody knows that. <laughs> oh my God. I think everybody knows that. And I think even Jim would agree that Terry talks too much. Just a second. So there. Wait, I, I'm trying. Oh, there. Give me a high five, Ken. Oh, there you go. We got him. Boom. There it is. <laughs> that, that, that question was planted. You, you talked to David before the freaking podcast, and you uh, set this all up. I haven't talked to David since he was in Florida, so there. I, <laughs> maybe I have, but I don't think so. You know, I, I, uh, I'd really be interested to know if uh, anyone from the San Diego bass fishing site that, Ken, or that Rob McGargle has established and runs uh has a question for us in that they are here in san diego someone yeah. who was here in san diego until we put him on the plane a few hours ago was our next questioner also my grandson and here's a loaded question for you what's the biggest bass that jim brown has ever caught and that was a 16 pounder at Ooh. lake hodges uh on a press day what did you on catch a press them? day with witnesses? Did you get a lot of ink for that, Jim? <laughs> yes, yes. Did my, you really? My, yeah, my picture did appear in the uh, San Diego Union. I caught it on a KNR a chartreuse spinnerbait. KNR spinnerbait, which is on Ken my Craig wall. Ross. Yeah. Now and, uh, and at one time, I mean, people keep records of everything, and I bet. You guys are guilty of this. I was contacted by a guy and he goes, okay, I want to talk to you about that bass. I now have you number one on the biggest bass ever caught on a spinnerbait. <laughs> and I was like, really? And then I found out later somebody caught a bigger bass on a spinnerbait a few years later. 
Ken, who Very was Very impressive, though. Uh, bigger bass on a spinnerbait, I'm not sure right now. I'd a have to, 16 I'd have to do on a spinnerbait. A 16 so the, on a spinnerbait. Wow, the Ross impressive. brothers were freaking a nuisance. I mean, they would go. I mean, they had Vail Lake. I mean, completely. They owned that lake. Yeah. Um, they had Elsinore owned. They were they were phenomenal. Their 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 spinnerbait was good, but they were really really good bass fishermen. Really good. And bass their fishermen. their spinnerbait, if you recall, was set apart from all others by yeah. the way they bent the wire on the jig. Yep. You know, they used a jig to wind the wire, not a fishing jig. And mm -hmm. that resulted in that unique notched situation where instead of a V, it came yeah. back in. But Evan, thank yeah. you for that question. I really appreciate it. I'm, it's good <laughs> to see that I have brought a listener from California to the Big Bass Podcast. Even if it is my grandson, who is a terrific kid. Oh wait, so the Evan Edwards is your your grandson? You aren't listening, Terry. Oh my God. Oh jeez. Hey Evan. <laughs> uh, and Evan agrees awesome. that you talk too much, Terry. That's that's <laughs> it's all out there. Uh, it's all over the place. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I want to see Evan catch a giant. What 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 is Evan's personal best? Evan is very new at the game. He is fishing. Well, don't start making excuses for him right off the bat. I mean, I do it somebody's for you. personal best. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> when, when you ask for somebody's personal best, your first first words out of your mouth should be a number. Uh, you know, I would guess. His personal best is probably a little over two pounds. He's fishing spotted bass. Nothing wrong with that. He's a, he's a young man. But he is terrific on quantity and intensity when it comes to fishing. And you so know, he, he really works it hard. And he is maybe with a friend might start a bass fishing uh club at his high school that he is going to start at as a freshman here in a few more weeks so that's that would be great evan good for you no there is no disgrace in your biggest fish being a shade over two uh we all got to start somewhere and uh you're yep. doing great yep so we got another uh question from kevin meta and it says uh has larry botroff agreed or asked to do a podcast with jim and, I, and Jim, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you talk. I'm gonna let you answer this. Yeah. So Larry, I think uh, I've already said I I think he uh, is the most dedicated field biologist. Actually, field biologists are the real biologists to me. Um, and there, I've never met anyone in my life more dedicated to fisheries. Because when the state took him away because they felt there was enough data on warm water fish in San Diego County, and they assigned him to study the Stevens kangaroo rat in Riverside County. This is like asking Werner von Braun to quit talking about rockets and work on bicycles. But anyway, Larry <laughs> was going up 
four days a week to Riverside to trap and study the Stevens kangaroo rat. And he was still working more than 40 hours a week in San Diego so that he could continue to have consistent fisheries data from our reservoirs. And so um, I don't think I, there is anyone in any, any sport that I have greater respect for their work. Actually, let's forget sport. I can, in any area of study or practice, I've never had a higher regard for anybody for their dedication than Larry, because he often worked without pay. And that is so, why I was happy to hire him away from the state and away from the Stevens kangaroo rat. And so for Larry, he has the benefit of a state of California retirement, well, well-earned and a well-earned city of San Diego retirement as our biologist. Now, to get to the question, I had talked to Larry about whether or not he would be willing to do that. And it was kind of interesting, you know, we talked a few months ago and I, I, I will get back to him, I promise. Uh, Kevin, it's a great question. And it would be terrific if Larry would be willing to do that. Um, not just for answering that question, you know, or, or for answering questions, but for the respect that anglers should show him and, and not just anglers in California. I mean, anglers everywhere should have to, in my opinion, know they about Larry, respect they owe, they owe a, And they owe a debt to him because it yeah. was, if it wasn't for what Larry did out in California during those years of the, of the, the late 60s throughout the, hell, the 2000s, I mean we wouldn't have Florida bass programs probably in these other States. And uh, yeah, you know, Jim, if you, if you can talk to Larry and he would be willing to, to, to come on the podcast, I, I think it would be good from a historical standpoint, you know, it would, it would forever put Larry Botroff you know, out in the ether and, and we could talk to people could talk to him and ask him questions and, and, and get the real Larry Botroff. I mean, that might be a, a two part interview. It might be an interview that, that you, I, and, and Ken do with Larry that isn't live. Uh, so we can actually talk to Larry and, and ask the questions that we want to ask. And then do a part two where we actually do it live and allow uh, people to ask questions to Larry. What do yeah, you think? I, I think that's a great idea. And one of the, one of the things about Larry that I respect so much is as opposed to me as a fisherman or any other fisherman, Sometimes we're not shy about giving an opinion because we think this is what it is. Yeah. Larry doesn't give opinions. He gives facts. You yeah. ask him a question. And if he had his files with him here, which he yeah. wouldn't, but 
if he had his files, but his reaction, it like I said, what was or the question, what was the biggest bass he ever shot? It's the same kind of thing with with Larry. It, you ask him a question, well, I have I haven't studied that, or you know, he he would not just throw out an opinion, despite this vast knowledge and experience. He's a scientist, and he's very careful about being a scientist. And the, and we both know we both know that there are scientists who just throw out something uh, because they have an opinion, and they're not always right. But if Larry says it, he has the facts, the experience, uh, working with it to answer it. If he doesn't answer it, he doesn't have the facts and experience. Yeah, a remarkable man. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you could touch base with him. I mean, I, I, I know that, uh, there's some circumstances that, you know, that might keep him from it, but, you know, talk to him and, and see if he would be willing to, to come on and sure we would great well, graciously have him on. I mean, it would be, it would be an amazing. Well, I'm, I'm admittedly long in the tooth at 76. Larry is, uh, I believe, 82. We met on the dock at Lower Otai when I took over that operation as a 19-year-old in 1967. So they moved me from Sutherland, where I was working for the concessionaire, and the city had some problems with the city staff at Lower Otai. And they said to the concessionaire, do you want half the boat rental money in return for you running the dock? And they said, sure. <laughs> nice. So yeah. for a dollar 35 an hour, I, I had a pretty good return on their investment in me. <laughs> hey, we had uh, Clay Williamson uh, asked the question, uh, does Mike Long listen to the show? And I can tell you folks that uh, Mike Long has, in fact, I don't know that Mike is a regular listener, but he has, in fact, listened when Jim Brown has been our guest in the past. And uh, Mike Long texted me to say he enjoyed the shows and that Jim Brown always treated him very, very fairly, very well. So uh, praise from Mike Long for the treatment he got from you, Jim. And Thank I know you. he has listened at least to some of the Big Bass podcast programs in the past. It's, and, uh, it's, it's my understanding that uh, Mike's lake now is uh lake cuyamaca and uh that he is my understanding is he is a volunteer at lake cuyamaca now and he's, wow. he's doing a lot of photography i know that um yeah that seems to be a passion of his at, at this time anyway guys um a lot of good questions out there but folks one of the things that's very cool about this particular live show is We've got 89 people watching right now, and I think that may be our peak, believe it or not. We are two hours and uh, some odd minutes in, and we just hit a peak of viewership. So uh, that's amazing. We started out kind of low in the 30s, 40s, but, but this thing continues to grow. Uh, if you've got questions for Jim Brown, please ask him. Terry and I have asked Jim a lot of questions uh, in past shows, we want to hear from you. This is this is your chance, so please uh, jump in. 
Casey Rice. Jim, if you had a 20-pound bass in front of you and you could only make one cast, what bait would you throw? And I'm going to say live bait or yeah. artificial. Okay, so if it was a live bait, I'd probably want to throw the biggest golden shiner I could find. I mean, big. And uh, and I'm I'm not a, a renowned big bass fisherman, so uh, I'm just another guy answering this. Another um, guy with a 16 pounder on a spinner bait. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and three over three others around 12. Okay. I haven't, right. I haven't cracked 11. <laughs> I've I've topped twelve, but okay, okay. I ca I caught a twelve on a crappie I was reeling in at Lower Otai. <laughs> oh, he was reeling it in. <laughs> yes, that's, you're one of those guys who, who catches trout in California on a five aught hook and then wind them slowly to the boat. Is that you wrong? caught that bass on a flea fly, right? <laughs> yeah. So so if if you're gonna say a lure. A uh, it would be the most effective lure here that everyone uses and I don't. And it would be a plastic worm. And if it was on a bed, it would be half a plastic worm. Because I made a how career. Big, how, how big a plastic worm? Well, if, if it's a 14-inch plastic worm, half of it would be seven inches. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So, a herder's flesh X plastic worm oh. from my era of angling was yeah. six and a quarter inches long. Uh huh. And maybe not quite, I, I would probably use about four inches and I would plop it into that bed because I made a career as a kid catching big bass off beds with a half plastic worm um if you guys ever get out here i'll show you some pictures of dignitaries who i had to provide the bass for the at lake sutherland only for them to hold up for a photograph that appeared in a magazine or newspaper as a 12 year old <laughs> yes <laughs> My, I am I'm not I'm not kidding. I was a <laughs> terrific bass fisherman, mentioned as being in maybe the top 10 in San Diego for a period from the age of 12 to about 16. Oh, well, you picked was, early. I flamed <laughs> out. I totally flamed out by your rotator cuff, didn't you? No, I, I, it, it, it is so crazy because I blew out a knee <laughs> as much as I loved bass fishing and everything. I really did a lot of it when I was a kid, when you're living at a lake and the rules at that time said lake residents are permitted to fish on closed days. Uh, as long as they observe state fishing game regulations let me tell you guys, cottontails and bass trembled at my approach. <laughs> I love it. All right, Dr. Oh. Batiste, 
You got a 20 pound bass in front of you in Casey's question here. You can only make one cast. What's the bait? Yeah. What do you guys think? Uh, it, 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 it depends. And, and again, it, you know, is it, uh, is it on a bed? I'm going to throw a white jig, maybe a bubble gum jig. Maybe one um, of Joe Everett's jigs that Eric Mayo recently maybe, sent me. Yeah. Maybe, maybe one of Joe's jigs. Definitely. Um, if it's not on a bed and it's like thinning off of a point or something like that. Oh God. Uh, I'd have to go with the with a twelve inch shiner that might have some spots on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, that's uh, live bait would have to be a big a big bait. It would have to be a a, a shiner in California. If I was in in Florida or, or some other state that had twenty pound fish, which we all know that there's only twenty pounders in California. There was one caught in Florida at one point, I think. Maybe two. H.W. Uh, Ross, you know, made a caught one. But, yeah, a big shiner or a white or a bubblegum jig. So we yeah. have experience with big bass and having, you know, you've been in California. But nonetheless, I, I think uh, Casey deserves an answer from Ken, who's very mum and has his hand in his mouth. <laughs> Well, first of all, you gentlemen have both screwed up the question because if I've got a 20-pound bass in front of me, I'm going to probably throw behind me where there's a much larger bass. What do I need with a 20-pounder? After all, I'm looking for a record fish here. I'm looking for something to top 22-4. But if it's a fish I can actually see, I'm assuming it's, in relative, uh, uh, it's not in California and he's 35 feet deep in gin clear water. Uh, I'm going to throw the only bait that I would throw. I would throw this bait ahead of a golden shiner and that is i would throw a, a wacky stickworm at this fish because i think that's gonna settle it's gonna land quietly it's gonna waft down relatively slowly in front of that fish i think it's a tough bait to turn down so i'm Kinda gonna like, throw a wacky stickworm at it so we're gonna call you david zimmerly uh you you know what dave zimmerly has actually beaten both you guys, okay? And I've beaten Batiste. So uh, Zimberly is kind of my, my big bass role model, if you want and, to go and, there. And and since my dad and I were were at the forefront of plastic worms, thanks to a, a Campbell soup salesman visiting Lake Sutherland and fishing it, a guy from Texas, um, you know, I, I, I we never conceived ever in the years that we fished plastic worms, my dad fished them for many years after my star had crashed and burned. And um, so, you know, when we get to the plastic worms, it had to be straight. The line had to go in the head of the worm with the hook turned and then Texas rigged. It had to be dead straight. And if we had seen someone wacky rigging a plastic worm, which my grandson does pretty effectively at Lake Oroville, <laughs> I probably would have gone over or I would have said to snickered to someone else, look what that guy's doing, because it made no sense to us. So yeah. we were in the dark. We did not know about that evolution in plastic worm fishing. 
it's uh i think the you know let's give credit where credit is due here the first uh acknowledged stickworm out there was the uh yamamoto senko and i think that's been the most significant new bait of the last uh 30 years yeah and that has my my grandson up there in orville that's that's what all they want to throw are Senkos. Yeah, I don't blame them. Hey, shout out to Gene Gilliland, our biologist buddy. Talk about great bass biologists. Gene Gilliland is one. He is uh, uh, really a, a intelligent, talented, talented guy, conservation director for BASS. Gene, thank you so much for listening and, and tune into the live show. So, Gene, we appreciate you. Thank yeah, you. Ab- absolutely. Yeah, Gene is... Uh... And he's been around forever, but I mean, he was the, the, the lead conservation guy for BASS and still is, right? And still is. Yeah, longtime uh, Oklahoma biologist now uh, yep. with BASS and has been for quite a few years now. David Zhang wants us to take the Big Bass podcast on the road. David, yeah. who's going to pay for this? We're ready to go. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I speak for Terry when I say we're packed. We just got nobody to bankroll this effort. And I'm already here where the Big Bass are. <laughs> Oh, please. Please. I don't, I don't understand. We could start it in San Diego. How? How is it legal? That's where the big bass were, Jim. That's where the big bass it's, were. How is it legal to have a podcast on big bass with two guys in Florida and Alabama? Tennessee. Oh, Tennessee. <laughs> Just as bad. Hey, Florida's where it all starts. Come on. Let's admit that. This is this is ground zero for big bass, and if you don't acknowledge that, I, I don't know why you're on the program, guys. Why, why are you here? Um, I, I agree. You're absolutely right. At one time, that's true. I'd rather be right once. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, we 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 we've got a we got a. Frank Dusset's crying on her shoulders here. He, he says, "You guys are all spoiled." The Canadian records for smallmouth bass and largemouth bass don't even hit 10.5. Well, if you're talking about a smallmouth, that's damn respectable. Uh, so I'll never see well, one unless I go to your side of the border. Well, Frank, I think that you guys have an opportunity to break the smallmouth record if someone can actually beat the <coughs> odds and come across that big fish that probably lurks in Lake Erie. Or maybe Ontario. Hey, Frank, uh, it but... is really difficult to find the province records for bass in Canada. If you have some insight into that, Ken at uh, thebigbasspodcast.com. Yeah, we are having a hell of a time because we have a, a, a we have a, a couple of guys on the east eastern portion of Canada and one guy on the western portion of Canada that are really interested in us doing a Canadian show on the Big Bass podcast. And holy crap, your And we're happy to do it, eh? Eh? Yeah, but we just, your government does not make it e- anywhere easy on us with respect I, to finding the data. I speak the language, eh? I can even speak California, dude. Bro, what's your, <laughs> bro, what's your biggest? So, Terry. <clears throat> yes, sir. Can- Ken said something there. I'm not exactly taking issue, but he I think he made a big deal about the fact. I think he said, well, a 10-5 sm- small mouth. Is- that was Terry. Terry said that. Oh, that I was Terry. All right, Ken, yeah. you've got to go with me on this. Okay. 
So Terry said, uh, so Frank, you know, a 10-5 smallmouth is very respectable. Let me say this. A 10-5 largemouth is very respectable. Indeed. Especially in Tennessee and Florida. And it's a nice bass here. (laughs) It's... You had me, Jim. You had me until you (laughs) until you stabbed me in the back. You had that's the way you do it. That's the way I do it. Uh, That was that was uncalled for. Um, Oh gosh, you know it's it's very difficult to find the the Canadian records. I've been I've been looking for them, and I've just been starting by trying to figure out which provinces even have bass, and it's not every province that even has them. So, so uh, BC, Frank, that's a... I think, I think British Columbia is the area that the Canadian record records will come out of because the lakes are smaller, the water is, or the the the, the climate is warmer. Um, it just all makes sense to me. I mean, I could be wrong, but I think Ontario. It's produced the biggest bass in Canadian history, generally speaking. I can tell you there are no bass in Alberta. There's 10 provinces, three territories. I don't think any of the territories, I'm not sure if any of the territories have bass. I don't think think, so. Of the provinces, most of them do, uh, but they don't necessarily have both species. Uh, They don't necessarily have largemouth and smallmouth. It's it's highly confusing, Um, at least to to this... uh, south of the border guy <laughs> there yes there is ken mccarthy lot. jim knows how to kick poor ken in the nuts there's yes. no doubt about that yes thank you <laughs> thank you ken ken's got to stick together uh, oh shit there, there, totally a call for young man that i'm familiar with because of his website promoting float tubing in canada and his name is Drew Wyatt. And so Drew is just all over the bass scene uh, up in Canada. And uh, I'm not sure where he is located, but he is very prolific and uh, seems like a nice young guy, very knowledgeable, float tube and kayak fishing up there. And I bet that he would have some clues for some areas. Um, he's really into it. Excellent. What? And uh, to Ken McCarthy's point about uh, Jim really kicking me around, you know, we only have Terry and I Jim didn't on see the program. That. We, we only have Terry and Jim on the program as part of our, our diversity, equity, and inclusion effort here on the Big Bass Podcast. <laughs> Yeah, Ken, you made me take my dress off that I was yeah, going to wear yeah. tonight. You know, Terry. Terry <laughs> identifies as a big bass expert. That's his only qualification. <laughs> oh God! And Mike Davis is calling you an instigator, Jim Brown. He's right. He's spoken to you now. This is the guy you, you talked to in the car earlier, Mike Davis, and and he knows who, he knows who you are. He he sees right through you, Mike. Uh, you have the same misconception that my wife states all the time. <laughs> that's that's wow. right the woman you've been married to for decades has no idea who you are yeah I, I exactly got it. I got it. 49 years this thursday 
Oh God, <laughs> rest <Congrats. your> soul. <laughs> the former the former divorce lawyer in me congratulates you, sir. Good well, job. And, and she celebrated by flying to Chicago to see friends. So. <laughs> That's what's keeping Smart you together, woman. brother. Keeping you together. Don't don't get don't book that. Oh God. Too funny. Oh, yeah, you're any right. More questions. Oh, okay. Here we go. Another what one from Kevin Mena. Kevin, uh, Jim, that's... did you go ahead? Okay. That is a great question. Uh, Bill and I did not fish together. Um, I don't think he wanted to have anything to do with a kid who was 12 years old at the time, 1959. But he wanted everything to do with my dad. So my dad being very well known, uh, we would not show up at Sutherland, where I eventually moved in and lived with the Dam Keepers family, uh, driving from Golden Hill in San Diego, which is near downtown. We wouldn't show up until eight o'clock in the morning. You know, my dad worked hard, very hard as, as a house painter during the week. And uh, so when Saturday came around, uh, he wanted to at least sleep until 6.30 and then get up and have his coffee. And we'd drive it. And it was an hour going to Sutherland. And uh, the dam keeper there, Chuck Martin, would all quite frequently, not always, frequently say, as soon as we pulled in and my dad went to get permits at the concession stand, you got two guys been sitting down there. <laughs> in rental boats waiting for you to show up since uh, sunrise. We'd go down and those guys would see my dad and not talk to him. They would follow us out on the lake. We had that little, uh, I think five horse, three horse monkey boards Sea King on the back of a rental boat, a heavy rental boat uh, and fishermen, would come up and one of them was Bill Murphy. And so I remember my dad would always bring three or four hurdle herders, flesh X plastic worms, some egg sinkers that we cut in half with a hacksaw and hooks in sandwich bags. And when people would come up, my dad would say, it's 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 not me just rig these lures like this and then he was really correct so he would hand him the bag or toss it and it was kind of a self-defense thing for my dad because it's kind of hard when you're on a lake and you know at that time the lake probably had 300 surface acres and you've got a, a guy in a boat always trying to get you between your boat and the rock pile you're fishing or the brush pile or the face of the dam, which was open at the time. And so Bill was one of those people. And you have to give him credit for his intensity because he approached bass fishing the way someone who becomes an all pro in football or an all star in baseball with the greatest conceivable intensity to learn everything that he could. And a portion of his learning 
especially when it came to structure fishing, which became his calling card, especially at San Vicente and at Lake Wolford, was talking to my dad, following him around. We didn't have sonar then, seeing how my dad found rock piles that were not visible. Again, sometimes we'd be on the lake for hours and never make a cast. He'd have a line on the bow and he would be sounding as we'd go along until that line went limp and he knew we hit a high spot or rocks. And then he'd look around and he would triangulate it and stick it in his mind as to where that spot was. And a story was written about him in the San Diego Tribune by Harlan Bartlett in 1961 or 62. And he described his approach to bass fishing as being like someone, a golfer. My dad played a nine-hole course at Sutherland. And so he had more spots than that. But he knew these areas that he had found underwater. And he would go to one and fish it go to number two and fish it. So I always knew we were going to do a clockwise loop around Sutherland by going up the west shoreline first, working our way, and then hitting across the face of the dam, and then coming back around. And so uh, there was a rock pile off of what is known as Parker Point. Uh, Steve Parker was one of our former dam keepers there. And then there is a hidden rock pile in the Mesa Grande arm. And that is really where Bill Murphy honed his uh, skills at fishing structure. Uh, there are only two other anglers that fish that rock pile, Don and Kathy Cross, who were terrific bass anglers. And they those people really got into it. Don and Kathy... And Bill, you would not invite them to be at the same place at the same time. But they showed it showed up at the same place at the same time all the time at Sutherland. So pretty weird. Your dad's dedication to that herder's plastic worm and all, is that do you think that's where Lunker Bill Murphy picked up some of his soft plastic stitching techniques? Was your dad a oh yeah, no an absolute yeah. of that worm just drag it every yeah. inch so i didn't do it but my dad had the whole hand movement i'm having trouble finding the camera okay uh, so your you know, dad well, retrieved well, the line in his hand just like murphy yeah, taught so later it, it depended ah. on the situation but when when you were fishing a rock pile and he wanted to stitch it really slow so i would cast and lift and drop let it sit lift and drop my dad was more stitching, 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 stop, lift, drop, stitch, 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 until he had a line wound around his hand. Then he would release the line, reel it up to get it tight again, and then keep stitching. And it was, he was really, uh, he, he was very, yeah, he, he was very, very, uh, very methodical in his approach. It's been it's been a long time since I read uh, Bill Murphy's book. I've got it right over here. Did he credit your dad for any of that? Did he mention your dad in the book? Yeah, I I 
have gotten rid of a lot. I'm looking up. I gave that book to someone. And yes, he had an inscription in the book. And when Bill was sick and uh, was terminally ill at that time with cancer, uh, he made uh, dental, you know, he, he made false teeth. Yeah. That, he had a lab in Lakes, right at the, where Lakeside and Santee meet. And uh, so he came by the office and you know, wanted to tell me uh, how much he appreciated some things I'd done with running the lakes, but mainly how much he appreciated my dad and that he wanted to know that my dad deserved a lot of the credit for helping him as a young man develop his bass fishing game. And the same was true of Bobby Sandberg, who, who told me that every time he was on the stage after uh, placing in a tournament, most of them in Nevada, Arizona, um, that uh, actually mainly on Lake Mead, um, that the first thing he told people was, I, you know, I, I owe my, you know, my, my roots in fishing to a guy named Mike Brown. Very nice. That's wonderful. That, that tribute has to mean the world um it does you know it's um just to give people because not everybody watching the show or listening to the show may be familiar with lunker bill murphy but uh a california legend targeted the biggest bass in the world and in california especially in the 60s 70s well really in the 70s 80s and, and 90s and early 2000s passed away i think in about 2004 uh, author of uh, a, a terrific book called In Pursuit of Giant Bass that was published in the early 90s and uh, just a, a legend in big bass fishing. Now, the I think book we got another... still, the book is still available through Lunker City. Lunker City bought all of the remaining copies and you can still get it uh, through them. And it's Lunker City, the makers of Sluggo. Uh, you can still get it through them i think for 24.95 or something like that it's, yeah, a, it's a City, phenomenal the, book the great herb reed who, herb reed. who created exactly. the sluggo yeah. yeah uh we've got a we've got a, a comment here from uh julia woke brown who says jim brown is such an epic storyteller now jim i'm gonna have to there's a there's a limit to how many family members are allowed to comment during a program and i exactly. think you're, you've, you've capped out now you know I wish you, uh, seriously, I wish you guys had friends and family members as proud oh, we of wish you. We, had, we wish we had friends too. <laughs> as, as, my family, <laughs> as my family members are kindly proud of me. So, Julia, I, I, Julia, we appreciate you helping set Jim up for the first two podcasts we did with him. Uh, and we fully agree with you. Jim Brown is a gift of, of storytelling and and the history of big bass in Southern California. Now the real, the real question though, Jim is, has Julia been watching from minute one or did she just jump in to make that comment? And she's already gone. She's in <laughs> Chicago with my wife. <laughs> Smart woman. <laughs> I, I'm sure oh. they came in early from their activities just to catch the podcast. Uh, 
but no, that, that's that's wonderful. And yeah, Julia, thank you so much for for all your help with the technology uh, on the California end of things when we had your father-in-law on earlier. So uh, we really appreciate that. He's he's an absolute joy. And uh, I've got another question from South Jersey Fisherman. Terry, what we got? Uh, Jim, did any of the biologists ever talk about the water levels in California correlating with the bass sizes at all? Or did usually the smaller lakes produce the larger fish? It's That's a good question. Um, I'll comment on it. I don't know if I have a uh, a, a, a satisfactory answer. Um, Larry had data that correlated annual harvest to the size of the reservoir each year. And to explain that, our reservoirs, not all of them, but some of them fluctuated greatly every year. Because again, their primary water supply reservoirs for the most part, there's a couple secondaries, but the primary water supply reservoirs feed their water to one of three water treatment plants that provide water to the citizens of San Diego. And I'll give you something to mull what relative to San Diego and its growth. This county must have somewhere around 3 million people. And it has annual rainfall and runoff for 50,000. So we're very desperate to utilize the water that we have locally. And it's combined with water that we import from the Colorado River and Northern California. So that helps to maybe explain a little bit like a lake like Sutherland, totally significant water level fluctuations, same as Barrett, because those reservoirs were not fed by aqueduct. The aqueduct that had been to, to uh, Hodges had been deactivated and has since been reactivated in a different way. So, gosh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, it's a, such a good question. Um, it, it, I, I can't really answer it. I can get to part two about smaller lakes producing larger fish. And in the interest of full disclosure, a lake like Miramar, which is one of the smallest, I think it's like 140 acres or so. Yep. A lake like Miramar that is planted with trout has a shoreline of hard stem bulrush and some cattails that extend out in the reservoir a great distance, has so much terrific shoreline edge cover. Uh, and then you plant it with trout, which isn't happening to any degree now. But you plant it with trout as we did weekly. Yeah, those smaller lakes like that and Murray could produce a lot of big fish. I will continue to say the most significant bass I've ever seen was the one that was pulled out the same year I got my 16 out of Hodges. Right now, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the angler who got it, but I know you do, and we hired his son. 
Lake Hodges. Oh, crap. 20 pounds, four ounces? Yeah, 20 pounds, four ounces. Who the hell caught that fish? Ah! You, when you say... Um, uh, the Hodges is the one that doesn't have trout, right? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and oh, that's okay. why I, I say it's the most significant bass in my yeah. life in lifetime. Yeah, anyway. I mean, yeah, that, that's – I'm embarrassed that you guys – it's Gene Dupre. I mean, I'm that's embarrassed right. that you guys – I thought yeah. you guys were from California. Hey, we hired his son and put him to work with Larry as an assistant. <laughs> Here, I, I've been operating under the assumption that you guys were actual Californians. Are you Canadian? I'm 76. <laughs> I can barely remember where the refrigerator is. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. I got a question for you, Jim. We've talked a little bit about Phil Jay, one of the great hucksters, frauds in the in the trophy bass world. Fair. Are there are there other guys out there who who maybe rivaled Phil Jay for that title that that maybe we don't know about, but who were kind of a thorn in your side as far as veracity? Or was he the standout? Oh yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, though though Phil was the Babe Ruth of <laughs> a Babe Ruth a bass, a bass, a bass fishing, fishing fraud. Nonsense. Wow! I'm going to catch a twenty pounder off that rock. <laughs> there, there there were you know a, a few others, and and you have to keep in mind. I mean the wacky approach that people had. I. I think I told you about the story of uh, a local guy. He was a landscape contractor. He caught two or three really large bass one week at Hodges. I'm sorry, at San Vicente. He was rumored to be a, a terrific trout angler at the start of the day. He then went up to Castaic and he caught some more fish. And all of a sudden, he had five fish collectively. 60 pounds. Yeah. 60 pounds, right? Yeah. Yeah. What was that guy's name? He was in Bath. I, I, I wrote a pretty memorable column about that when I was writing for the San Diego Tribune. Um, and you guys should have that story because it was darn good. And uh, he then went down and, you know, he... The fish were at Lions and O'Haver. Huey Lyons called Larry Botroff, and Larry called me and he said, you guys better come down here. My office at Lake Murray was right next to the Lions and O'Haver taxidermy shop. We go down, and he goes, my God, this guy brought in these fit, you know, this tremendous catch of fish. And so from the standpoint that I was a moonlighting as a part-time outdoor writer, I you know, I had to contact the guy. I also had to contact him because I knew darn well it was bogus. And, uh, you know, we, we, I had the benefit of another outdoor writer by the name of Ed Zorowski, who later was the outdoor writer at the Tribune, you know, and then later at the San Diego Union after those papers merged and Rolla Williams retired. But Ed was working at the Daily Californian, and we tag-teamed this guy, calling, you know, hey, where did you catch, you know, and we shared the information. Now, Ed, 
Ed being a very dogged, true reporter, uh, worked beats very hard. So hard that when he covered the Aztecs, the uh, I, was, I was told that the athletic director wanted to have a party when Ed was switched to the San Diego Chargers and would no longer be haunting the halls at San Diego State. But Ed was uh, such a terrific reporter. And uh, so he was calling. And I, I was getting calls from Ed up until midnight. My wife was going bonkers. The phone would ring and Ed would go, what do you have on this? What, what did you hear about this? Anyway, so we nailed it. I wrote my story. He, his story came out. My story was always on Thursdays. So he beat me at the Daily Californian, which did have a much smaller circulation. And uh, he got his story in and I got mine. And it was unbelievable. The guy had given us all this bogus information. And anytime you follow up and investigate something, it really is like cutting into an onion. It's layer after layer after layer. And you're finding all the things that aren't true. I think the best thing was he told me of the market below Castaic, where he weighed the fish in. And I called the market and the guy goes, First of all, if there were five fish weighed in any that heavy anywhere around here, every person in this region would know about it. I'm an, I've never heard about it. And to be honest, that scale has been out of commission for quite a while now. So. <laughs> yeah, I remember. remember that okay, happened. I'll give you I'll give you the name. John Fuller. No kidding. Wow. Yeah, I got to look at because I think that was actually written up in Bassmaster. Um, I got to check it. Yeah. There was so, a picture I remember from Bassmaster of a guy with five fish on a stringer thrown out on the boat dock or something like that. I can see it in my mind's eye. I don't remember yeah. the name. I do. Yeah, it wasn't that it wasn't that stringer. I, there was a guy. Oh, yeah, I didn't think oh, that was him. Th there was a there was a guy who was the concessionaire's motor man at San Vicente, and he had two huge bass on a stringer laying on the dock. And that picture was used by publications. Gotcha. He was kneeling in front of these two huge bass. I remember a guy kind of squatting, not kneeling, but squatting in front yeah, of squatting. five giant um, bass. And he had a he looked very looked very seventies, early eighties. He had the the stash and kind of longer hair. Uh, yeah, Roger Dixon. Mm -hmm. Roger Roger Dixon's the guy. Pisces had, guy. Uh, yeah, five fish uh, that went a uh, five fish limit that went uh, forty pounds, ten ounces. Uh, and it was in the Bill Rice took the picture, and it was in the Western Outdoor News sometimes in the early 70s. So I honestly yeah, can't, that's not the I, I remember of. Roger Dixon, but I can't say anything. I, I, I remember that he had a great catch, but I don't know anything that I would say that would disparage the truth of that. I just don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, hey, yeah, Ken. He's uh, he's kneeling on the grass, 
and he's got five big fish. Yeah. Got a few more folks chiming in here. BTC pointing out that uh, he and Nathan and I have another <laughs> podcast that we're going to debut in September on the 14th. It's going to be called Bass After Dark. I want everybody who's watching this to tune into that. Um, also, we've got uh, our buddy Mike Davis from Mississippi saying, Jim, was there ever one particular big bass rumor or story that sticks out for you more than any of the others? One we haven't discussed, of course. No, you know, I, I, I think the most memorable one uh, was the Phil J story. Nothing stuck out in my mind like that bass that went from 19.2 to over 20 pounds and three months later weighed 24 pounds. And that's fabulous growth in anybody's book. And it happened right here in San Diego County. <laughs> well, for Be what it's Texas. worth, <laughs> for what it's worth, guys, I have hooked many, many, many a giant bass. But by the time they got close to the boat and I was able to lip or net them, they were much, much smaller. I don't know how they lost so much weight in that short distance of the fight, but it happens. You know, you wear them down. I, I'm sure with that tackle of yours, they had no chance. So true. <laughs> so true. Okay. Uh, David Zhang. Uh, does Jim know how much the trout stocking programs cost during its heyday? And uh, that's a that's a great question. You know, I'm curious about that because that had to be uh, an expensive thing. And, and you must have seen that budget. Did you have a lot of influence on that budget, Jim? I wrote it. Aha! We have you <laughs> to blame for the kidnapping bit, of Florida of bass. Yeah, but, but so the trout stocking program is I was a thought it was run is that the angler paid the the trout stamp and that trout stamp money then went to the lakes so they could buy trout to put in the lakes no, is that no no it came out of our operating budget everybody who fished boated hunted waterfowl put money into a large general fund that we had you know that we that went to the city and then we were able to have a budget built out of that amount of money. And so when I came into the lakes program, our trout stocking, as, a, as opposed to the Department of Fish and Game at the time, now the Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, let's just talk about the trout we stocked. And so we were stocking uh, 16,000 pounds into San Vicente, 32,000 pounds each into Murray and Miramar. So we'd start the season, the, the truck held uh, 1,200 pounds per, per tank. And so we had Whitewater Trout Farm, which was the best trout vendor we ever had. Uh, and they're located down in Palm Springs, if you can believe that, but there's a fabulous uh, aquifer there in the Whitewater Canyon, the Whitewater River, cold water, good quality. So they were bringing us those trout and we specified that they weigh a pound and a quarter minimum just to minimize predation, knock down the predation uh, by bass and cormorants. 
And so we planted those trout uh, at Marin Miramar every week. And we would start the season by boosting the inventory. You know, we'd put in three loads. So we'd have 3,600 pounds of trout on opening day. And then the next week we'd put 1,200 in. And of course, fish are being taken by anglers and dying of predation to birds and fish. And so the price at that time, and so again, uh, we're, we're talking about, uh, gosh, a tremendous amount of fish we were buying. But when I started, they were $1.49 a pound. Wow. And by the time I left, we were no longer buying trout. And they they were, gosh, probably right at five dollars. Wow. Um, and we got hurt by a number of things. Whitewater had to clo close down, and uh, we had to go to other vendors. Um, the Sweetwater Trout Farm on the Sweetwater River in Descanso, which is the closest to us. Um, they were as skilled as Phil Jay at, at, at using smoke and mirrors. They would claim they stocked Miramar and no one ever saw them. And one, one, wow. of, our keep, one of our keepers said, Jim, I think they're just dumping dirty water into the lake because I sat here wow. looking and very few trout came out of the chute. And wow. that was reflected in the fish catch. They were catching very few trout. And so, you know, the, unfortunately, the city had a policy of taking the low bid. I and mean, that was a city policy. You had, you had to take the low bid unless you could prove otherwise. Well, proving otherwise opened the city up to a lawsuit because you would be saying negative things about that contractor or that vendor. And it was a headache that neither the city attorney or the purchasing department wanted to deal with. So, yeah, we suffered uh, during that period of time uh, relative to the planting of trout. But I, it, to, to the question, yes, the, the trout prices went up and uh, it was really good for encouraging fishing and attendance in the winter and very popular with kids and seniors. Murray and Miramar are the two lakes that are the in-town lakes in San Diego. They're two of three that are in the city limits. So it was a true pioneering of the urban trout fishing program, but we didn't start it. We didn't begin it. We, when we inherited Lake Murray from the Helix Irrigation, they had already started the planting of trout and if you give credit to trout planting in California, in Southern California, it actually begins with Jim Burns, 1951, employed by the Escondido Mutual Water Company and the stocking put-and-take trout in Lake Wolford. Very interesting. Hey, guys, uh, we are right at three, three hours. hours. And there are still... 79 people watching uh which is a lot which is a lot um 
We didn't hit a top end over 100, I don't think, but we have rarely been below 80 during this show, so that's pretty strong, and appreciate all the support. If, if you are so inclined, as I put in the message board a little earlier, give us a thumbs up. Give Jim Brown a thumbs up. Uh, this is this has been a great show, but I think we got to shut it down at some point. And uh, I hate to say this might be the time to do it. We've been I can't believe we've been going three hours already. Uh, our other live shows have been three hours and, and they, the time just flies by, Jim. Thank you so much for uh, you bet. spending your evening with us. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks to everybody and to Ken and Clay for the very nice compliments that they've given us in the last uh, 30 seconds. It's it's greatly appreciated. I love working with you guys. Uh, the pay is terrific. I mean, I'm, my, it, <laughs> you know, it's it's going great, guys. You're making and, more than we are. We're in the hole. We're going to give you a, we're going to give you a raise, Jim. <laughs> Good. Good. Well, no, just these bonuses are terrific. And, uh, for, you know, for those that don't know, when these guys have something they don't need, want, or use, they, you know, they've said, we'll try to get stuff to Evan and help his bass fishing career along. I really help that. Hope, really appreciate that. That that no continues. That can and, and it's not contingent on your your appearing on the Big Bass podcast. And it, hey, for the record, it's certainly not contingent on your insulting Florida. You don't have to do that <laughs> to continue to. Get no, I I, I I I hate getting in that long line. And <laughs> and and Lure, Lure Lab said something giving me too much credit. And, and I I want to say the bass fishing, the terrific bass fishing we had would have happened without me the change in the integrity of trying to manage the program would not so i i can't take credit for the great bass fishing i never have it's so nice of of uh, of you folks to say that but the credit goes and even larry would tell you this the credit goes first to the fish they're the ones that <clears throat> manage to grow so darn big here and it goes to larry botroff for having researched studied and chronicled the hit you know everything having to do with this so uh, i'll i'll take credit for managing the lakes and the people um the the bass did that on their own and jim you're well over the uh family comments now you're you're you may <laughs> these are not digits. family members <laughs> Jennifer Edwards, great job, Daddy. Jennifer Edwards is not. This was such why an is she calling you Daddy? Tonight. <laughs> well, there it is. I, I, I didn't see that until now. <laughs> okay, oh, you know, God. I said we were over eighty listeners most of the evening. How, You're uh, welcome, what, sixty Evan. of them were family members. What are we talking here? <laughs> well, uh, I got we a need, <laughs> And where where are these people when our regular shows are on? <laughs> I, I, Evan is there. He may not comment, but uh, Evan's there on the regular shows. Well, hey, thank you so much, Terry. Can you uh, uh, take us out? Thanks so much to Jim Brown and and his wonderful stories about big bass out of Southern California for uh, more than sixty years at this point, and uh, and we can't 
thank you enough. We we really truly appreciate it. The audience loves it too. So thank yeah. you, Jim. Well, thank you. I, I agree. I greatly appreciate what you guys are doing for the bass fishing community. Uh, nobody's doing anything along these lines. I think I think it's terrific. Oh, cool! It, it's been terrific you, because because you're part of it. Thanks so much. All uh, right, Terry, yep. can you take us out, brother? Yep, yep. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, you know, another I think successful live show. Uh, we're gonna. I'm not going to say we're going to slam the door on Jim Brown because we're going to have Jim Brown back here many times. Uh, we assuming hope. he'll do uh, it, but maybe we'll maybe we can say we could slam the the door on Phil J. We pretty much discussed his entire fraudulent career tonight. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, he had two giants. For... He had two 18 pluses. He claimed out of Florida, by the way, that we didn't even talk about. Uh, okay, well, well, maybe we're okay. Slamming the door or not, you know, thank you all for, for spending three hours with us tonight. Uh, if you want to contact Ken, uh, Nathan, or myself, you can reach us via email uh, at ken at thebigbasspodcast.com, terry at thebigbasspodcast.com, and uh, nathan at thebigbasspodcast.com. Uh, again, this is the only place where you can find or listen to uh, stories of big bass that you may not have ever heard of or you have heard of uh, and join us again next week for a, another episode of the big bass podcast, the podcast where size matters. Thank you. <laughs>